This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Tuesday morning. It is Tuesday, May 9th. It's also Teacher Appreciation, or I'm sorry, National Teacher Day. But I guess you can choose to celebrate it by appreciating teachers in your lives, whether it be teachers that you've grown up with and have had, or teachers that are currently teaching your children. National Teacher Day. I've had some great teachers throughout my life, and I'm sure you have too. So uh, just take a minute today and show show some appreciation for a teacher in your life. Uh, We are also, once again, Dr. Matless. He's out sick, but we will soldier on, and we've got a great show ahead of us. We're going to be speaking about companies and politics. Should they throw their hat in the ring, or should they remain neutral, and whether or not that could hurt them? Very interesting topic coming up. We're also going to be speaking about our talents and how we can develop them and how we can use them to enrich our lives and and take our lives in directions we may not have considered before. We'll also be speaking with our health evangelist, Dr. Ron Hager, here at uh, BYU, or BYU, I always say BYU University, a little redundant, but he'll be here uh, shedding some more wisdom on the topic of hypertension. And as Cole Wissinger informed me, it is actually Hypertension Awareness Week or Month? Looks like month. A whole month. Mm-hmm. Wow. Terry, do you need a whole month to uh, appreciate hypertension? No, I got oh, it. Not appreciate. I, I don't. I should should say it's not hypertension appreciation month. That wouldn't be right. Anyway, you're good. You don't need a full month to appreciate or no, to I'm recognize good. that. We should be okay. <laughs> okay, good. And then, of course, we'll be speaking with Spencer and Jerem, who are probably, well, they may not be too disappointed or surprised that the Jazz, the Utah Jazz, were swept out of the playoffs. And last night's game was kind of an ouchie. Ooh, well, I don't want to depress you. I'll uh, leave that for somebody else on the show, maybe Spencer and Jerem. Anyway, all that fun coming up here on the Matt Townsend Show. But first... Let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? A 23-year-old has been arrested in connection to a series of murders that terrorized the Phoenix, Arizona area over a year. Aaron Sosito was arrested Monday on 26 felony counts in connection with 12 incidents from August 2015 to uh, July 2016, during which a person in a car opened fire on random Phoenix pedestrians, killing nine people and injuring more. Sodeo had already been arrested on April 19th in connection with his uh, mother's boyfriend murder in 2015 and held on bond. The boyfriend is only his only victim alleged to have had any connection with Sodeo. Police have yet to identify any motives for the killing, which took place in poor neighborhoods in western Phoenix. This terrorized that neighborhood, that whole city for a while. He just sort of randomly driving around shooting That's people. That's horrible. Um, former pre- President Bill Clinton and author James Patterson are writing a novel together. You, no. ever, you ever read a James Patterson novel? No, but I see him everywhere. Well, and I always wonder what it would be like to I, read one. I read a story that said something. He has like four novels in the process at all times. That's crazy. That's just how he works for some reason. Yeah. Uh, so James Patterson, Bill Clinton writing a novel together. Uh, the book it's going to be called "The President Is Missing." 
will be released in June of 2018. Is this a children's story? The uh, president is missing? No. Okay. Clinton and Patterson have been friends since they met on a golf course, of course, a decade ago. The book idea originated with their lawyer, Bob Barnett, who went, hey, I know two guys. They could get them together and write a book. <laughs> so working on a book about a sitting president drawing on what I know about the job, life in the White House, and, and the way Washington works has been a lot of fun, Clinton said. Patterson said it's been the highlight of my career to work with Clinton, having access to his first-hand experience has uniquely informed the writing of this novel. Patterson is the author of, like, Along Came a Spider, and there's an Alex oh, Cross yeah. series. Well, good for them. So, yeah, there's a book. It'll come out next year. Uh, this one is I found interesting, A Conspiracy. Ooh, I love them. Bumblebee Foods. You ever heard oh, of yeah. Bumblebee Foods? Oh, yeah, tuna. Tuna. A major U.S. tuna fishing company pled guilty on Monday to conspiracy to fix prices for canned tuna. Bumblebee pled guilty to one felony charge, agreed to pay $25 million, uh, in a, with a criminal fine for its role in a price-fixing conspiracy conducted with other unnamed tuna companies. Uh-oh. The companies colluded to fix canned tuna prices beginning in early 2011 until at least 2013. The Department of Justice said it was still conducting a probe into the tuna conspiracy. So wait, I'm confused. They yeah. were hiking the tuna prices? No, or? they were colluding so that they all sold the sold it at the same price. Oh, right? they're so they fixing all, the price. They all make the same amount of money, and no one's trying to undercut somebody else. But I mean, isn't a can of tuna like fifty cents at the? I mean, yeah. What's the big deal? I, I'm like, eh, I'm okay. okay if it's fifty cents across the board. I've never seen a can of tuna. I mean, if a, tan, a can of tuna was like five bucks, you know, that's well, when yeah. you're like, wait a second, but. But then you'd have to walk past the tuna at the grocery store to know that, which we never do. Eh, I usually buy it by the case. So, I mean, if you have it, you have it. Um, and this came, this is a story from uh, the Flathead County, Montana, police blotter. What? Police blotter, a report of the daily activity that the police conduct and when they go out. And so they do like little one-line descriptions of calls they get. So it's almost like a blotter blogger. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're kind of funny. This one, it's a whole day's worth of stuff. So it's 6.51 a.m. This is on May 3rd, around that time, mm-hmm. right? 6.51 a.m., a man reported that someone had just spent the last few hours trying to break into his house. The undeterred burglar found, uh, finally got into the house and was now making a scene. The reporting party wanted law enforcement to remove the man. Hmm. So someone spent the last couple of hours trying to break into the guy's house. How long is it, you know, I mean, and the police haven't shown up, yeah, so or he the, hasn't yeah. called the police. So, then he calls and he goes, okay. "He's in the house now. I, he's making a scene. I want you to remove him." That's the call. At nine thirty-eight a.m., a man found some weird-looking mushrooms. At eleven sixteen a.m., a local man called police because one of his drug-crazed neighbors stole his chainsaw. At two forty-five p.m., some rowdy kids drove their '80s beater car through a fence. <laughs> At 4.15 p.m., a Columbia Falls man, this is Montana, reported that his neighbor's dog is a jerk. <laughs> At 5.08 p.m., some books were found in a gully. Oh, no. Just books. No other oh. information. It just says some books found in a gully. Hate that. And at 6.15 p.m., a woman called police because she believed she has been the victim of fraud. A few days earlier, a man claimed to be a police officer called her and informed her that she owed the IRS more than $1,400 in taxes, right? So then it says the man said that the best way for her to pay the IRS was to buy a bunch of iTunes gift cards and then call him back with all the numbers on the back of each card. Oh, no. The woman did what the man said, but after giving some more thought, she decided 
decided it was pretty weird request for the police to make, so she called the police to check. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, what are, what's an IRS agent going to do with a bunch of iTunes gift cards? Buy some games, download some music, a couple oh. movies. Man, that is just so depressing. Yeah. But, I mean, a list of, that was a – oh, man. Yeah, some of the dog was a jerk. Books found in a gully. I mean, that's a full day for the police. If somebody's breaking down my door, even if it takes them two and a half, three hours, I'm probably going to call the cops, like, at minute one. You're not just curious to see if they're going to succeed or not? No. But how much of a no. threat is it if he's doing it over several I mean, how do they phrase it? It said that he, he had just spent the last few hours trying to break into his house. At some point, I mean, he's failing over and over again. You just kind of, okay, go away, dude. Stop messing with my house. If I'm not going to call the cops, if I have two and a half hours to kill, I'm at least going to set up some, like, Kevin McAllister Home Alone type obstacles for him to try to get through once he does get in. You know, like the Christmas tree ornaments on the floor, the paint cans, the uh, glue on the cellophane, and then blow some feathers at him. I think the most useful one there was the paint cans. Oh, yeah. Except I think you'd see a coming and duck, but but getting hit hit in the head with a paint can is going to end your night real. We quick. are talking yeah. about a burglar that it takes two hours to get into the you're house. You're right. You're right. That might not be, be the most observant. It could be very effective. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, sometimes uh, it just takes longer. You just can't break into a home as quickly as you used to be able to. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make burglars like they used to. That's true. Anyway, Terry, anything else that we should be worried about or uh, any more burglar news? I found this story, found it kind of interesting. It says, ask people about memorable things or events that happened during their lives, and their recollections tend to be from between the ages of 15 and 25. Interesting. It doesn't matter if it's current affairs, sports, or public events. It can be... Oscar winners, hit records, books, personal memories. We re- uh, these uh, researchers in science and memory call this uh, reminiscing bu- a reminiscence bump. It references to the shape it gives when we plot a curve in memories over a person's lifespan. So it's one of those rare effects in cognitive psychology that's not contested. We have given up researching whether it exists and uh, began asking why. Neurobiolo- neurobiological accounts propose that there is something about the brain maturing that leads to information we encounter in this period between the ages of 15 and 25 to being particularly well encoded. It's what we remember when you think of the good times. That's a good point. I try to, you know, because when I try to think of anything before age 15, all I can remember is the stuff that traumatized me or worried me or I was injured in some way. Interesting. Well, I I can agree with that. I read this. I start looking back like... What are some of the events in my life that I, I, you know, the things that I do now, why do I do them now? Why am I interested in things now? Why do things entertain me now? And you can kind of track it back to that time period. Those are kind of the formative years. Hmm. And things, I I think they also have, um, it might be the time that you first experience something. True. And so you have that that freshness. It's not something you've done over and over, and so you remember that emotion that's involved with the activity. Maybe because it's right around the age when you can get a job and you start being able to pay for those types of things. Right. There's some freedom there, and you start having some uh, of your own experiences maybe away from your parents, 
away from that sort of influence, and it's kind of your own personal thing. Yeah. So some researchers propose that we are better at recalling first-time experiences like a first kiss, first driving lesson, and so on, most of which tend to happen at that age. Others suggest that the reminiscence—I can't say that—reminiscence bump is part of a culturally defined period in our lives in which key experiences occur and are then shared and discussed. Our own research has suggested some differences that arise because this is the period when we lay down memories and store information that will define who we are for the rest of our lives. It's, as you said, the formidable years. Yeah. Uh, and and so you're you're creating what you are, what yourself is, what that is in your mind. Mm-hmm. And as you create that, those memories are more lasting for you. Um, we set out the t- and then they go on and there's a test to see if this is correct or not as they go through. But. Um, I don't know, because you start, you start, you, you look back, and you have these these memories, and you you create them at this moment that, that creates who you are. And later in life, you have big life events, and I can't remember some of them. Yeah, you know, it's like you you just sort of blow right through them, and it's on back to you know, I uh, big life event, the two kids, right? Right? You've had you have two kids. I've correct? got two kids. Yeah, and and those are big memories. And mm-hmm. we were looking at photos last night. I go, that happened. When did that happen? You start. Oh yeah, I guess that did happen. And it was just the whole time period that that happened. I just sort of had the kid back to work in a week. You know, yeah. just moving on. And it doesn't. It just seemed like those memories weren't as cemented as some other ones. It's got to be different for women though, because my wife seems well, to remember yeah. so much more than I do, especially in terms of our kids. And uh, I, it's starting to affect me. I've actually started taking notes on my phone like, oh, here's here's a good memory that I have or here's a memory that we created today that I should probably remember right. or that maybe not is like life-shattering or altering, but it's a nice memory nonetheless. So that's a good reminder. 15 to 25, you say? That's what it says. I got eight more months to come up with All significant right. memories. There you go. Get working, Cole. cement in your mind. Get to work. <laughs> All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with a guest, uh, Ph.D. Daniel Corshin, who's going to be talking to us about corporations and politics. Should they remain neutral or should they throw their hat in the ring? Interesting topic. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. You know, companies have always participated in the politics of our country. They get their hand in everything. Even so, people also expect companies to stand by the core values they say they live by. So what happens when a company decides to not take a political stance on a certain issue? Well, here to speak with us today is Ph.D. Daniel Corshin, uh, who is an associate professor of marketing at Drexel University's LeBeau College of Business, who studies companies and their political stances and how it affects them. Good morning uh, and welcome to the show, Daniel. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited to talk to you about this. This is just so fascinating. I want to. I, I know that uh, you conducted some studies, but uh, first of all, let me let me hear a little bit more about how you became interested in this topic and uh, what has surprised you so far. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I was first drawn in. Uh, many of your listeners will remember when uh, Chick Fil A's CEO inadvertently made a comment um, that he was a, against gay marriage. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And uh, and after he made that comment, he he didn't intend 
to it to be something representative of the company. But I think many people just uh, since he was the uh, the CEO and and the, the founding family, uh, they talk they took it that way, and immediately there were. Uh, lines up outside the stores. There were lines in favor of his statements and uh, people who wanted to support the company in that stand. And there were uh, there was a line, you know, right on the other side of the door, uh, trying to boycott the place and uh, prevent people from buying. So that that um, that was one of the real uh, f- the first strong reactions that I saw, and um, and it really drew me in to see what was what was going on. And is this something that could end up happening more? Um, one of the uh, the you know the big we've seen the com- the country is becoming more polarized. Uh, people are uh, politically and uh, so and people are increasingly looking at the world through this political lens. They're drawing it into everything. And uh, what what a, a number of other researchers have found over the years is that this really is something that's uh, it's been picking up steam. That people are seeing their purchases more and more as a way to express their political values. That's so fascinating too, and it's interesting because I think I think most people would think that uh, if you're a company, you wouldn't want to take a stance on these really big issues for fear that you're going to polarize a lot of your your consumers and, and lose business over it. But your study that, that you've conducted maybe suggests that that's not the case. Yes, um, but the caveat is that it depends on the company. So um, you're absolutely right that the knee-jerk reaction, I think, of just about every executive out there is, let's let's stay away from politics. We don't want to touch this thing with a 10-foot pole because it's going to drive people crazy, and who knows how people <laughs> will react. Uh, but uh, what what we're finding in our research is that um, it's that's for some companies it's not always the case, and it depends on the expectations that the company has already set. Uh, so uh, there there are two types of companies that we that we study. We kind of categorize companies as either uh, a more traditional type that's uh, we call result oriented, and that's the kind of company that says we chase performance, we adapt to the market. We're, basically, we just uh, we're, we whatever the market tells us to do, we kind of move in that direction. And then there's another group of companies that in the last 10 or 15 years has been gaining prominence, and these are companies that say we act on our values. Uh, we're guided by core beliefs, and uh, and though, and even if it might give us a little bit of trouble in terms of performance, uh, we you know we we have we have to act based on those principles, and those are the companies that set up expectations, uh, and when a political uh, issue comes along and they're confronted with it, people expect them to act. Now, do you think uh, consumers see the values-based uh, company? As a company that maybe has more of a backbone, or do, would they rather that the companies leave their politics out of the transaction? Yeah, most people that uh, I speak to, and we've um, we've been conducting qualitative research, more quantitative stuff uh, in the lab, in the field. Um, the general, you know, the people's first reaction is. Uh, companies really should stay out of this. They're, 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 but then when they start talking about more, they say, well, wait a second, that company, here's, here's Patagonia. So Patagonia is a, gr- a great example. They've, um, you know, I mean, they've, their entire, uh, uh, their, their reason for being almost, um, the way that they state it, is that they, they want to protect the environment. Um, and uh, so they are, uh, so then when, when the president make, signs an executive order or the, uh, Environmental Protection Agency makes statements about uh, about future plans. 
the people expect they just expect uh, Patagonia to to have a backbone on that issue. It's very issue kind of specific as well. Um, so they are they are expected, and if they don't act that way, then uh, many people will find it hypocritical. And that's that's a lot of this is coming down to the authenticity of the company as much as anything. So, you know, obviously we know that that businesses can have an impact on politics. Has this always been the case? What's different between, you know, politics and companies decades ago versus uh, the role that they play today? Yeah, the I, here the way that I see it, I mean, the companies have been involved in in politics. There's no I mean, companies have been lobbying for uh, for years and years. They've always had such a big impact on the way the government functions. Uh, so those ties have always been there. What the difference between what we're seeing now in the past year or so, uh, and say 20 years ago, or even even five years ago for that matter, is that companies are are making these positions uh, public. They're uh, they're they're public statements where they're saying this this is how as a company we need to stand this way. Um, and that that's a it's a major difference because everything uh, used to be behind the scenes. Uh, now, many there there are a lot of uh, a, a lot of consumers, employees. Uh, the pushback that I usually get is is people say, well, you know, companies really should just be in it for profits, uh, and this is this whole idea of getting involved in the political process is crazy. Um, I, I you know I have to acknowledge that as a as you know that's a, one philosophy, one way to go. Um, I see it more as a, uh, as a transparency kind of an issue. Um, you know, so I ask when when I get that kind of pushback, the question I ask is, well, do you think it's better for this to just be behind the scenes, uh, behind closed doors where we can't see their influence, or do you think this is something that should be uh, more out in the open, where if companies have strong beliefs about something, uh, we should know about it. I I am more on the side of, uh, you know, this this should be transparent. Interesting. So, uh, Dr. Korshin, tell us tell us how you conducted the survey and what it entailed and, and what you discovered. Sure. We've done a, a number of studies. I'll, I'll tell you about one field study that I thought was fascinating because it looks at people's actual behavior right when they're in a store. Uh, what we did was we um, we had we we worked with a market research company um, that does mystery shopping. It's the kind of uh, surveys where where people will be sent into a store. They're given a task and then they'll rate the the service quality of the of the people in the store. Uh, we use this technology through this mobile platform, and uh, so our respondents they arrived at a nationally known uh, convenience pharmacy store. Uh, when they were in the parking lot, we gave them uh, a series of messages about a political stand of the company. Okay, now these were um, they were kind of based on on real stands, uh, but we altered them depending on the type uh, on on. Uh, uh, just randomly. So some people were told that this was more of a values-based company that acts on their beliefs. Some people were told that this, this company, it's the same company always, right, is, uh, is more that results-oriented uh, company that, um, that adapts to the market. And then we told them about uh, an, an issue. Uh, this was on uh, um, uh, gun control. And on that, on that issue, we said that either the company uh, did not take any stand, they abstained from it, or they took a stand on one side of the issue, or they took a stand on the other side of the issue. Okay, so we covered kind of all the different possibilities of how the company, um, and we just randomly assigned these these in all different configurations. So we had every sort of different possibility. Then we sent the person into the store after they read this message. Uh, they we gave them a, a task uh, to do in the store, 
And then when they left the store, we asked them, did they purchase anything that they weren't planning on buying before? Okay. Uh, and we use that as you know how comfortable as a way of, of understanding like how comfortable were they with their experience in the store, how much do they like the store, and and uh, and as a sort of a proxy for what uh, their reaction to this stand. What we found was that uh, depending on the type, on how we described the company, on those expectations, we had the complete opposite reaction to the stand. So for those result-oriented companies, right, the ones who say the the more traditional approach, we might call it. Uh, for those companies that say we adapt to the market, those companies, if they took a stand, no matter what it was, people did not like it. They purchased less. Okay, they they were much less likely to purchase. If they abstained from the stand, then people were more relaxed about the company. They they went in, they did their their shopping, and they ended up purchasing more. Okay. Wow. Uh, so that's the traditional. That's the kind of traditional. Uh, what the other companies when we when we set up those expectations that this is a company that acts on its beliefs. This is a company that that has these strong core core principles that guide them. If those companies um, uh, took a stand, no matter what the stand was, this is the part that was fascinating. Even if the even if the consumer disagrees with the stand. Right, they um, they're still purchasing more in the store. Uh, about twenty, a little, uh, slightly under twenty five percent of the time, they're purchasing something. Okay, when that same company abstains from taking a stand on that issue, um, it drops from around twenty four percent to about sixteen percent. Wow. Um, and uh, so we're finding so uh, what we're finding is that that depending on the company, we have completely opposite effect. The expectations are completely the opposite. Yeah, it, I mean the the strength of those kind of effects and the way that it reverses like that just blew us away um, because it's it really does go completely counter to the way that most executives think about this. They they think you know if somebody disagrees with us, it's over. You know we're in we're in big trouble. Uh, but what we're finding is that people are actually much more tolerant. Um, they're in in one sense they're more tolerant, right? They're saying uh, we can we we can handle the a difference of opinion. Uh, but on the other hand, they're more demanding than we think, right? They're, they're yeah. Saying, they're saying if if, uh, if you say that you have strong core values, we're going to hold you to that. Um, you, we're not going to let you get away with saying, you know, you've got these core principles that are guiding you, and then when you know when the rubber meets the road, you run the other way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that this is something that uh, is this is an example that's brought up in my family frequently. You know, I have. Uh, some people in my family that will refuse to go to Carl's Jr. because of the the content of their ads. And it's interesting because, you know, uh, I I have two kids and uh, we live down the street from a Carl's Jr. And yeah, I I may not appreciate the content of of some of their ads, but uh, their restaurant has a play place. (laughs) and it's a really good play place you know and so i wonder how much how much uh consumers are are just making these compromises you know well i don't appreciate the message that they're conveying but uh you know they have a service or a product that i that i really feel like i need i wonder how much that is going on yeah, I you know what what we're finding and i don't have direct evidence for this but if i take the you know the whole of what we're learning um what what we're finding is that that People are they they are fairly tolerant. Like in the way that that you're you're looking at it with Carl's Juniors, you're you're saying, well, maybe it's not exactly aligned with how I see the world. Um, but if they're being upfront with me on it, um, if they're being honest about it, and they have a good a good product, 
uh, a good service that they're that they're offering, then you know I can I can handle that. I can uh, I can overcome that because I know where they're coming from. Um, if I feel like they're withholding something from me, um, if I feel like they're trying to be manipulative. Um, then that's where those are the times when it starts to transfer over, and you say, well, maybe they're also being manipulative in the way that they're providing their service. Maybe maybe they're not as you know they. It seems like that play place is designed for the the benefit of my kids, uh, but you know maybe there's something else going on. Maybe they're really just doing it as a you know as a means to get me into the store to manipulate me in some other way. So those trust barriers get broken down when people feel that the company is withholding uh, that honest conversation. Yeah. And, you know, as far as Carl's Jr. goes, it's interesting because now we're seeing ads that have addressed those concerns of so many consumers that their their content is just not family appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, they're, you're starting to see a shift in their advertising where they're, you know, there was a this big, long commercial that they aired where the – the CEO of the company comes in and he takes down all the, the pictures of the scantily clad women. And he's like, mm-hmm. this, this is not how we're going to do it anymore. I wonder if they're just uh, kind of poking fun at the issue or if they're <laughs> truly taking a stance be- in, in direct uh, response to their consumers' outrage. I wonder if they're really taking a stance and saying, you know what, we, we hear you and now we're going to do it this way. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, it's it's hard. I, I, I'm not as familiar with the with the case as I as I should be, so I can't speak directly to the Carl's Jr. But um, but what I can say is that um, you know, consumers are struggling with this, and executives are struggling with this. You know, and um, and this a lot of this comes down to a, a larger shift in the way that people are purchasing. Um, where you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. Or, or more, people would buy products, they would buy it for the quality of that product, and they wouldn't really go beyond it. Uh, and what's really uh, changed so dramatically in the past few decades is that people are now asking, who is it that I'm buying this from? You know, it's become much more important, the values and, and uh, where, the, where the company stands on social issues of all kinds. Um, and, uh, and so this is, it's a tension, I think, that a lot of people have that people didn't, it, it just didn't cross people's mind uh, 50 years ago if I'm going to buy a shovel or a washing machine or, uh, or go to a restaurant, uh, you know, who, what, what those, what the, the people's, uh, what their social values were and who they were buying it from. It was just, you would just make that, that very simple um, calculation about the product and now it's become a lot more complicated as people say well now if i use that that shovel in my driveway let's say after a snowstorm uh if my my neighbors are going to see me using that what does it say about me as a person uh and uh, and those kind of things have um you know it's made being a consumer actually a lot more complicated than it, than it used to be Absolutely. And Daniel, we we really appreciate you kind of giving us a, a peek behind the curtain. You know, these are questions that don't necessarily, like you said, come up in our minds as consumers. Let's do this, Daniel. Let's take a break. And uh, when we come back, we'll continue the discussion. And I was hoping that uh, we can get some more examples of, of companies that do take a stance and companies that don't and what their what the cost of their silence may be. We're speaking with Ph.D. Daniel Corshin who is giving us a peek behind the curtain, as we just said. And we'll continue this discussion when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Ph.D. Daniel Korshin, who is an associate professor of marketing at Drexel University's LeBeau College of Business. And uh, his latest research examines employee and consumer reactions to companies that take controversial political stands. Daniel, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks. So uh, before the break, we I brought up the example of Carl's Jr. And I'm just I'm curious to know what example, what other uh, specific examples you have of companies that uh, first have taken a stance, yeah. and then also companies that have not taken a stance, and how yeah. how those stances have either hurt them or helped them. Right, right. Well, um, we can start. I mean, a year ago uh, when I was. I, I had a, an article in um, uh, Knowledge at Wharton, uh, and in that article, I was really trying to convince people that this could happen, right? That this was a year ago, uh, and how things have changed since then. Last, uh, you know, from uh, trying to convince people that it was possible to um, to the the just onslaught of companies that jumped in during the election, and especially between the most active time was uh, nearing the elect the presidential election, and um, until. And just shortly after, around in February, when uh, right after the uh, immigration um, executive order came right. out, right? Yeah, um, and that that was just a period of tremendous activity. Uh, and we had, you know, in in tech, we had uh, Grubhub. If you may recall, the CEO sent a company-wide email that was uh, blasting uh, uh, Donald Trump. Um, he got a lot of a lot of pushback for that because um, that was seen as very heavy-handed. Yeah. Um, the um, the there were uh, reactions also uh, more on the on the liberal side from uh, Amazon and uh, AT and T uh, on uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, on the uh, more on the conservative side, there was uh, Yinling, the beer uh, company that's very popular out out here in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, gave the Trump family uh, a tour of the factory and said, "Our guys are with you." Um, uh, KFC uh, made some uh, nods to the uh, Blue Lives Matter. Um, we had uh, so so we had we've had a lot of activity on on both sides. Uh, so in a hundred days, there's been no shortage of issues that people could take a stance on. Oh yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and every time something comes up, you know, it's uh, it, it people start looking to those. To those companies, and they're and they're saying, "What what is your stand?" Right. Um, there's one I, I mentioned, Patagonia before. Uh, Patagonia and REI, two companies that are in the same industry, um, they've both taken uh, what you might say as is uh, pro environmental stands. Uh, Patagonia much more forceful in in the way that it that it's speaking, saying, you know, we uh, actively oppose some of the. Uh, some of the proposals uh, from the EPA and from the president, uh, REI taking um, a more, uh, I don't know how you describe it, but just not quite as forceful as the, as the Patagonia uh, stand saying, uh, you know, we support the environment and we're working to address it, but we're not taking any sort of specific stand on one issue versus the other. Yeah. Uh, any Any examples of companies that you know we mentioned earlier Carl's Jr who maybe they started uh, by taking one stance but then because of public outcry or influence they've decided you know what we're going to we're going to listen to our consumers and we're going to be we're going to be willing to change our opinion based on what our consumers are saying are any right. examples of of that 
There's, uh, I, you know, the, the first example that jumps to mind is a very high-profile one when the uh, the immigration executive order came out uh, in uh, late January and discussions into early February, uh, and the reactions from Uber and Lyft. Um, those those are jumping to mind because they they're two companies in the same industry, very similar products, uh, and they had very different approaches to it. Uh, Lyft was very outspoken uh, as a, a critic of that uh, of that the so-called Muslim ban, uh, and uh, and Uber was a lot more. It, it was very hard to say what what they were all about, right? They said they were it was important to them, but at the same time they were they were going to work with the administration, but it wasn't really clear where they where they were. They yeah. were kind of obfuscating at at the time. Uh, this is one issue that we put to uh, a panel that that I run uh, of uh, of scholars from around the world uh, at uh, BYU. There's uh, Jeff Dotson is one of our our members of this panel. Um, he's in the the marketing department there, and uh, and it's a panel of experts from uh, from eight countries, uh, 39 universities, and periodically when a company takes a stand like this, uh, we I, I pull this uh, this group of scholars. Uh, about how the company is handling it, or are they handling it in a, in a good way or not? And so we're not judging what the stand is. You know, this is not. So we're not trying to judge uh, whether about the legislation that there or, or the the executive order per se, but we're just judging how that company is is reacting. Uh, and we ask them for their grades uh, for. Uh, uh, Uber and Lyft uh, simultaneously, um, and their their reactions I think mirrored very closely that the, the reactions that we saw from consumers, uh, which was that um, that Uber was by going back and forth and trying to trying to avoid making any statements on this, they caused themselves a lot of trouble because it seemed like they were withholding uh, information. Um, whereas Lyft was, you know, they said, here, we're putting our cards on the table, um, and, uh, and, and this is it. You know, so uh, Uber, you know, suffered partly from that. There were, there were some other issues with uh, um, a, a, a driver strike going on at, at the JFK airport. Uh, but I think in addition to that, they're, uh, they're very, um, you know, their uh, they're, they're kind of cagey response to this um, hurt them a lot, and it was one of the reasons why the, uh, the delete Uber movement started and they lost hundreds of thousands of subscribers for a time. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that is, I guess that's a, a good example of what the cost is of, of remaining silent or neutral on a political uh, issue. It can be, yes, yes. And uh, for them, you know, I, the way that I, I see with Uber is that they, they've also, you know, they also have uh, most of their customers and employees are in areas that are much more liberal as well. So there was that, you know, that that added layer uh, of it as well. But uh, but they, that that was part of the picture, I think, for them was that they uh, they were seen as as being uh, maybe not quite deceptive, but that they they weren't really they weren't laying their cards on the table the same way that Lyft was. And uh, and in that moment, in those few weeks, Lyft was a very uh, they gained a lot of subscribers, uh, and uh, Uber lost quite a bit until they were able to recover. That's interesting that you use the word deception. Um, does it does it matter for a company which way which side of the issue they take, or do consumers just want to see that they're taking a stance one way or the other? Yeah, 
the best case scenario is you know that the the company is taking a stance similar to the to the consumer i mean i think this uh, that that would be the best but consumers are very they're quite tolerant if they feel that the company is is being honest and i think chick-fil-a is a great example of a company that um, that does that they have people recognize that they have strong values as a company uh, and they're willing to support it. Not everybody that shops there agrees with all of the views of the of the CEO of the company, uh, but people, uh, you know, but many people say they, you know, they have good quality food uh, and they have strong values. We respect that that they have those strong values. Their shakes uh, are too good to not buy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. And uh, so, so even you know, in places like um, uh, you know, like Philadelphia, which is a much more uh, a, a much more left leaning uh, population here, especially in the in the city of Philadelphia, uh, the Chick Fil A stores are still you know. I mean, there are some people who who may have uh, reactions to the, to the store, but um, but for the most part, you know, people are telling they say this is a company that uh, they're being forthcoming. So just one last question as we wrap up the interview here. And thanks again for kind of giving us a peek behind this curtain that we mentioned. You know, as consumers, we don't – these aren't necessarily questions that are at the forefront of our minds when we're making these purchases. Um, So you mentioned Uber and you mentioned Chick-fil-A. And obviously some of these companies have had uh, some impact based on the stance or lack of stance that they've taken are these consumer reactions are they do they have a lasting impact or or do they change yeah they they're able to change and companies uh you know so uber is a good example of a company that has uh they've recovered somewhat i mean those those doubts i think are always going to linger a little bit in people's minds uh but uh, but they've for the most part uh, gotten through the worst of the storm and they've uh, and they've re- recovered a bit um so we're we're you know, this is um, it becomes part of the of a longer story and the associations that people have with that company of whether this is a company that's being honest with me, um, and it's something that um, you know it can in when companies handle it poorly, and they're seen as being deceptive, then it chips away at the trust with with consumers. Um, so I, I don't see it as a it's not something that if you make the wrong move, it's going to take down the company, uh, or it's or if you make a, a, a good move, it's going to you know lift you to the highest heights. But it, it's something that uh, contributes to the larger picture of the way people understand the company. It, it contrib- it, it's another window for consumers into who is running the company and what does that company stand for. Well, Daniel, we really appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. And uh, his name is Daniel Corshin, and he is a Ph.D. associate professor of marketing at Drexel University's LeBeau College of Business. And he's been talking to us about the cost of remaining silence, uh, company silence on political stances. We really appreciate his insight on this topic. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun and the discussion here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We just finished speaking with uh, Daniel uh, Corshin, who talked to us a little bit about some of the choices we make as consumers. And, uh, you know, they're sometimes based on a stance, a political stance that a company will make or not make. Really interesting topic. And uh, Terry South now wants to talk to us about some of the choices that we make when it comes to brushing our teeth and our dental hygiene. 
Yeah. So, what, what, how efficient do you think? You always hear you got to brush your teeth. You need to mm-hmm. floss your teeth. That's the way you avoid cavities. Yes. I tell my child. He gets mad. He doesn't want to brush his teeth. And I say, fine, then I'll get the pliers. We'll just remove the teeth. Because yeah. if not, that's preemptive, what the doctor's Yeah, preemptive do. strike. Yeah. Of course, he gets mad. And that's really what I'm trying to yeah. do is provoke him to get mad. <laughs> Mom gets mad because it's late at night and everyone's mad. And I caused it all. I'm just having fun. But no, no. <laughs> that's kind of how it little glimpse inside yeah. my house. Uh, it says, daily brushing and flossing has become so in- ingrained in our society that for most adults, our oral hygiene routines have become second nature. But that means we don't think twice about whether we're actually caring for our teeth properly. In fact, if done incorrectly, brushing and flossing can have a detrimental effect on our health. So uh, use this site. This, this, they talked to a professor of dentistry at the University of Washington. Oh, excuse <laughs> me, a professor of oral health. Well, it's a real thing. No, absolutely. Okay. And I'm, not, I'm just I just kind of a, a dentist as a professor is kind yeah. of an interesting. His name's Felipe Hajul. And, and what he, he's saying is that um, – the fluoride in some toothpaste does strengthen your teeth, mm-hmm. right? But he says instead the best way to prevent cavities is to avoid as much as possible sugar and other simple carbohydrates. Yeah. That's what rots your teeth, right? Yeah. Brushing is going to help get stuff out of them, but what really stops the cavities is you need to adjust Don't eat your so diet. much sugar, yeah. He says, however, he goes, that doesn't necessarily mean you should stop brushing and flossing altogether. Both activities keep your teeth clean and strong. And mostly, ask, you know, pleasing so people don't see that chunk of broccoli that you had for yeah. breakfast or lunch or whatever. <laughs> breakfast at my house because we eat weird food for breakfast. Um, so what he's talking about, flossing, basically he says you probably don't – if you have restorative work, some dental fillings, that kind of thing, you may need to floss because things get stuck in there. Mm-hmm. And for most people, he says flossing trying to cause – when you do it, you need to try to cause the least amount of trauma to the areas between the teeth. Some people do it very aggressively. Mm-hmm. If you roll out and you have you know bleeding gums when you're done flossing, you may want to you know lighten up a little bit. He also says most people shouldn't have to floss unless something's stuck in your teeth. Right. Interesting. Right. So it's not necessarily – he goes flossing by itself doesn't actually prevent cavities. Mm. It's more of just there's something in your teeth. Get it out. Right. So he's yeah. kind of looking at flossing that way. Um, he emphasizes that before dental professionals recommended a particular oral hygiene routine, they should conduct proper long-term studies to ensure that their recommendations actually prevent dental issues as backed by solid science. So why wait for the research? What's current scientific consensus is the best way to floss? He says people who have the dental feelings restore to work floss. If you have something in your teeth, floss. He says one should not let floss snap between the contact points of the teeth. In other words, don't yank the floss into position with such force that it snaps against your gums. If you do, you'll make them sore for a few days. Mm-hmm. Happens to me because I apparently do it aggressively. <laughs> so, you know, back off. Don't do it so hard. When it comes to brushing, same thing. Don't do it so aggressively. My wife always gets mad because my toothbrush, the, all the bristles are just mashed. Yeah. Right? Because I, I just kind of grind away and I'm done. And she hers is like perfect for months on end. And mine lasts like four weeks and I have to get a new one. <laughs> And uh, so take use fluoride because that'll strengthen your teeth. But you know, take it easy. Apparently, yeah. we're very aggressive on our teeth, and that causes a lot of the 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 gum gums receding and problems that you have. Maybe that's just when people choose to vent their daily problems while they're brushing their teeth. Maybe it is. Oh, that stinking boss. Told Maybe me it to. is. What he says though, he goes, there is no proof that brushing and flossing prevents cavities. Really? Yeah. It's more the sugar and the carbohydrates. If you stay away from those, that prevents the cavities. Huh. 
brushing and flossing is more for appearance sake and the, your own level of comfort if something's stuck in there. You know, fresh breath, that kind of stuff. So don't eat the sugar to no. have healthier teeth and uh, brush your teeth so you'll be more pleasing to be around. And if you are using fluoride, which has been proven effective in preventing cavities – don't immediately rinse with water afterwards because then you're just washing it all away. So I recently made a change in my brushing. So instead of rinsing my mouth out with water after I brush my teeth, I just spit out the toothpaste yeah. and don't rinse out with water. Yeah. That's what I've been told to do. And if you don't like that, you probably need a, a new toothpaste. If it's you know, if you find that gross, get another flavor. The aftertaste, yeah. yeah. you got to watch out for that aftertaste. Well, Terry, thank you. That so, yeah, was interesting. Lay off your teeth. And it makes me want to eat less sugar now. That never works with me. Yeah. It's like, yeah, fine. It's a nice thing to say, but the execution is a little more difficult. Well, that's it for this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun as we continue to celebrate National Teacher Day as well as the day after Matt Townsend's birthday. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Tuesday morning. It is uh, May 9th here on the Matt Townsend Show and pretty much everywhere else unless you're, you know, across the world. But that's okay. We're celebrating the day after Matt Townsend's birthday. Because uh, I, I think we should just keep celebrating the days after his birthday since he wasn't here on his actual birthday. And he's not here again today. We're also celebrating uh, National Teacher Day. So think about a, a teacher that's made an impact in your life or that's making an impact on uh, the lives of your children. And just reach out to them. Show them your appreciation. Although I think Teacher Appreciation Day is a different day. So think about them on National Teacher Day, and then when it's National Teacher Appreciation Day, that's when you can share your appreciation. Anyway, uh, we've talked on the program today about uh, some various crimes that people have committed that seem uh, progressively ridiculous. And we have some more stories to share with you, because in a moment we'll be talking about a burglar that uh, broke into a home and started eating some food. We all get a little hungry, even when we're committing crimes, right? And uh, also another person that uh, used a cell phone to illuminate his path because his uh, headlight wasn't working. Interesting, fun stories coming up here in just a bit. We'll also be speaking with Elizabeth Crook, author of the new book, uh, Life Lar- or Live Large, The Achiever's Guide to What's Next. So uh, if you've got some talents and you're, you've reached a point in your life where you're, you're looking for something else to, to uh, enrich your life, then she's going to help us figure out how to do that. First, though, let's head on over to Terry South, who's going to talk to us about what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? The White House is reportedly considering expanding a ban on carry-on electronic devices on flights. This is from CBS News. Laptops and other carry-on electronics are now banned on U.S.-bound flights from eight Middle Eastern and North African countries. The Department of Homeland Security is reportedly considering banning the program or expanding the program to flights from the U.S. to Europe. 
While government agencies have not confirmed the expansion, rumors department sources say that the expansion was likely. The Federal Communications Commission said Monday that its website was bombarded with denial-of-service attack after criticism from the regular, uh, regulator's plan to reverse net neutrality rules. The attack came a day after comedian John Oliver urged viewers on from his HBO show to submit electronic comment uh, opposing the regulator's plan, setting up a website for the sole purpose of filing such comments. Shortly after the appeal, the FCC said in a statement that it was subject to multiple distributed denial-of-service attacks. These were deliberate attempts by external actors to bombard the FCC's comment system with high amount of traffic to uh, the commercial cloud hosts. The FCC said adding that the attacks made it difficult for legitimate commenters to access the file and file their comments with the FCC. The chairman, Ajit Pai, said last month he would seek public comment on his plan to undo net neutrality rules, a move that would leave Internet service providers mostly free from FCC regulations. Now, last time they did this, was it three years ago? John Oliver on his show encouraged everyone to go to their website and do that, and they crashed the FCC website. (laughs) Um, He did it again Sunday night, and they said his show probably ended around 11 Mm-hmm. PM and so you end up by midnight the FCC's website crashes. Wow. The FCC is saying it's this they called it a denial of services attack where they people focus all these computers and just blast a website with so many uh, requests to access the website that the website shuts down. Yeah. That's how that works. Huh. Well, and so they're saying it's it's that not John Oliver. They're making a point to say it's not this comedian. He didn't he didn't shut down the website again. <laughs> Like, come on. Does it matter? Yeah. Either way, there's some people that are interested. But uh, this denial of services attack is just uh, internet pranks, internet vandalism, basically. They're just messing. Yeah. They're, they're causing problems. Um, a 10-year-old Florida girl fought off an alligator attack by prying open the 9-foot-long beast's mouth and freeing her leg. The little girl and rescue personnel said on Monday, the girl Juliana Osa was swimming Saturday afternoon in about two feet of water at a lake in Moss Park in uh, Orlando when the alligator bit her. The 10-year-old Florida girl fought off the alligator by prying open the nine-foot-long alligator's mouth, freeing her leg. The little girl and uh, she, uh, let's see here, what did she do? She was pulled ashore, rushed to the hospital when she was treated for lacerations and puncture wounds in the back of her left knee and lower thigh. She was back home Monday with her leg covered in bandages from hip to toe. Juliana said that she learned from a school field trip to Gatorland Theme Park in Orlando that if an alligator attacks, you should stick your fingers in its nostrils to help force open its mouth. That is so cool. Yeah. Do you remember anything you learned on a field trip? Um, no, not really. Yeah. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah, so she remembered. I mean, I, mean, I always thought you poked him in the eye, but maybe that's just sharks. She tried, yeah, she tried the nostrils. No, we have had stories of people poking alligators in the eyes, too, yeah. and getting away. Maybe it's just generally... I think most animals, you poke them in the eye or maybe grab their nose and yank on it, they're going to have a reaction, because it's yeah. just kind of weird. Why are you grab my nose? So trappers caught the alligator, euthanized it, but uh, wow. Nine-foot-long alligator. In this Good for her. That's awesome. Um, and finally, Oreos. Oh, I'm listening. New, new Oreos news. Mm-hmm. This is important stuff. So they have a new limited edition firework cookie. Hmm. The new Oreos in store May 8th. So that was yesterday. They're in mm-hmm. stores. I don't know which ones. You can figure out by yourself. Okay. Because, um, you know, sometimes they're at Target. Sometimes they're at Walmart. Sometimes they're just limited edition. You can get them online yeah. or something. So they're, they're around. They're, it's a classic chocolate wafer, cream filling as always. 
but they take things up a notch with rainbow-colored specks in the frosting that are like Pop Rocks. Pop Rocks Oreos? Yeah, so the reason they're Pop Rocks Oreos. They're not Pop Rocks like the brand. Sure. They haven't, you know, they don't do the, the deals Same that way. Same effect, though. But they have little chunks of candy that fizz and pop as pa- you eat the cookie. Can we have Palakiko go to the store and, and get us a case of these fireworks Again, Oreos? I don't know how widespread these are. I don't know okay. where they're at. How do I, you know, sometimes you'll find them, sometimes you won't. It says, like, as this says, uh, it's like a party in your molars. As you crunch through the cookie, there's a bit of heat involved and the feeling of sparkling bits uh, subtly exploding in your mouth lasts long after you've uh, eat the, ate the cookie. They have this language. Um, the novelty product marks the start of Oreo's interest in innovating beyond their usual wacky flavor rollouts. This time they want to crowdsource their next big hit, offering up to $500,000 as a prize for a person who comes up with the best concept, which will be made into the next cookie. Wow. Better than fireworks Oreos? So you, you can take your idea mm. and uh, submit it on Instagram or Twitter with the hashtag MyOreoCreationContest, I guess, in case you're uh, so inclined to contribute. Some flavors that they've noticed so far, raspberry Danish. Mm. Um, there's a whole bunch. You go through and there's the people have taken – either there's a template on a website somewhere or people are just really good with uh, with Photoshop. But they take the Oreo cookie bat or you know container or whatever it's in and then they, they, they superimpose their own like flavor yeah. logo on it. Palakiko, so we need to get him on that too. And since he's a student, you know, he'll get a fraction of that 500000 Right. Uh, you know, 40% of that goes towards taxes mm. and then we can split the, the rest among – the show the gets a hit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's working so, for us right now. I I came up with a flavor one time. I don't want to share it on the air because I don't want anybody to steal it. Mm-hmm. But it was amazing. They were so good you could only eat about one or two of Is them. It like because they're French vanilla? No, there oh. was a pun involved. That's oh, all I'm going to say. Of course there's a pun. Yeah. Always a pun. <laughs> but would, yeah, you, so, would you try that? No. So no. did you go through and look online and you see just an endless sea of different creations people are trying to come up with. Most are pretty gross. So you mentioned dental hygiene in the last hour. Yes. And comedian Stephen Wright says that whenever he uh, has an attractive dental hygienist, mm. he'll eat an entire case of Oreos before his appointment. <laughs> just to make it longer? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I could imagine that uh, the dentist appointment after eating some of those fireworks Oreos would be quite intense. My dentist has to sort of fill out a form beforehand. Really? Occasionally. Like they have to update their records and it always uh-huh. asks, when's the last time you flossed? And so Ooh. I write right before I came in today because that's when I did. Oh, that and then is they like, do floss regularly. No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> that I, yeah, I always have to hang my head in shame whenever they ask that. Like, how often are you flossing? I feel like I got a question wrong on an exam. Or I say like when I have something in my teeth because that's when I do it. Right. Go, oh, whenever weird. I eat popcorn yeah. or corn on the cob. Yeah. That's how it works. <laughs> Other things, you know, I, I want the flavor to last, but that's getting a little too graphic and gross, so we'll move on from that. Um, speaking of eating, well, you know, if you were a burglar, hmm. would you, wouldn't you? would you just get in and out as quickly as possible? You would think. Yeah. Some people like to dawdle. Like to hang around. Yeah. We've had uh, people, like, they just go upstairs, take a nap. Some people, you know... Just spend two and a half hours trying to get in the house. There you go. A South Carolina man is charged with burglary after breaking into his neighbor's home Saturday because he was hungry, according to a county sheriff's office report. 
Uh, Joel Puglia, 55, told deputies when they arrived at the home that he did go into his neighbor's home because he was hungry and did not have anything to eat in his house, the report says. Puglia says he pushed on the on the locked door several times to get it open. And uh, Joel reported that he made a pimento cheese sandwich mm. and took and consumed a pickle out of the pickle jar, the report said. Yeah. This was your college roommate that would eat your food, <laughs> even when you labeled it clearly in the fridge. And right. completely deny that it was him. Mm-hmm. Deputy said Puglia entered the residence with the intent to commit a crime and charged him with burglary and uh, petty larceny. Wow. I don't know. You'd think you'd want to get in, accomplish whatever you're there for, and get out. But people tend to hang. We've had people go in and take showers, kind of shave, yeah. just kind of get you know, freshen up. If he was that hungry, why didn't he just knock on his neighbor's door and ask for the, the pickle and pimento cheese sandwich? Yeah. He just stumbled into someone else's house. and Muddy Buddies. Mm. Somebody had a fridge full of cold Muddy Buddies. That might be tempting. Hmm. But I would probably just knock on the door and ask. But, I mean, if you're going to do that, you look, you take what you need and get out. You know, just hang out. And... But there's no situation in which I would need to do that because our cupboard would always be stocked with rice checks, the key ingredient to making Muddy Buddies. There you go. Anyway, in other crimes. Hmm. Other crime news. <laughs> yes. Cell phones have plenty of uses, but headlight isn't one of them. The Pasco County, Florida Sheriff's Office stopped a scooter Monday night because it didn't have a functioning headlight. According to a post on the Sheriff's Office Facebook page, the driver was trying to use a cell phone light as a headlight by bungee cording the phone to a mirror. It didn't impress the uh, corporal who made the stop. Authorities didn't say if the driver was charged, but the driver was sent home walking without his scooter. That's just dangerous. Yeah. Why would you ever do that? Well, because you don't have a headlight. <clears throat> Sounds like another student. <laughs> you just and try to. No offense, make two. Cole. That's this is nothing that you would ever do. Never. Yeah. Oh. See, I, see that I can understand that, right? Because the yeah. light on the phone is really small and all that. I was driving my my truck. This was probably like six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And I got pulled over because my fog lamps were on. But my mm-hmm. headlights were not on. Ah. Because when you, when you pull the switch, there was like two clicks. Yes. The first click was the fog lamps. Second yes. click was both fog lamps and the headlights. Mm-hmm. And I just had it on the first click. It was dusk, right? It wasn't dark. Yeah. And like people were sort of turning their lights on and not – it was just kind of in the middle at middle time. And this cop pulls me over because my headlights are off. Yeah. And I'm looking around. I go, it's not even dark yet. And he goes, you got to have your headlights on. So this is at what time? This was probably around 6 o'clock. See, because one of my pet peeves lately is, you know, I'm I'm leaving to go to work around 6. And so it's the light is starting to come out, but it's dark enough that you probably can't see a car behind you very well. So I've had cars, several cars lately that have not had their lights on. And right. I'll try to get as far away from that person as possible. And I had my – but my fog lamps mm-hmm. were plenty bright. Yeah. They were like another set of headlights. Right, but they weren't the actual headlights. See, so if, I got a ticket. See, now if I'm you like, had, if you had your fog lights and the iPhone light, probably would have passed. Would have been fine. Just strap an iPhone <laughs> to the front of the truck. But uh, and the thing that was was great is I was talking to the guy. I'm like watching cars drive by with their headlights off, just completely. And I'm like, so 
all these other people, you're going to grab them. That didn't. You don't point out to the cop that he's pulling you over oh, for something. Yeah, you can't. I mean, like, what about all these other people? You're going to get them too. That doesn't help the Never situation works. at all. But I did it because I was not happy with that at all. I tried to use that same reasoning in elementary school. Ah, I yes. was the I was the kid where if everybody in the classroom was talking, the teacher would signal me out and say, "Jeffrey, mm-hmm. stop talking." And it's like I'm looking around. Everybody else is talking. And yet I'm the one that gets sing- singled out. Not fair. When I was in sixth grade, my voice started to drop. Mm-hmm. So everyone else's voice is a sort of high pitched. Mine is a little lower. The teacher could hear me. Yeah. So whenever I, I – people are whispering all over. I whisper because it's lower. The teacher, for whatever reason, could hear that easier. Yeah. And would always stop talking. I go, everyone's talking. Never yeah. worked. Never worked. I'm also the guy that when I sneeze, I never get a bless you. Never. Somebody else could sneeze immediately right you know, right after me. Everybody gives them a bless you. I don't know what it is. <clears throat> bless you, Jeffrey. <gasps> Times they are a changing. For the better. Cole, I appreciate that. Now I can put that complaint to rest. Anyway. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Elizabeth Crook, who's going to tell us how we can utilize our talents and to be an achiever and to look for that next big thing in our lives when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is still out sick. You know, in today's world, people are constantly searching for improvement in their lives. In order to progress and continue to feel fulfilled, most of us hope to find new ways to change or seek out new hobbies. Well, Elizabeth B. Crook, a longtime corporate strategist, agrees and wanted to help give those people what they're searching for. In Live Large, The Achiever's Guide to What's Next, a new book that is actually out today, Elizabeth equips her readers with the valuable tools she's used for years to help high-achieving individuals find fulfillment by determining what's next in their lives. She joins us this morning to share more about her book and her strategies. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks, Jeff. Good morning. And congratulations. I understand your new book is out today. It is. It's all very exciting. That is exciting. So I feel like I'm living large. I'm entering a new chapter. <laughs> well, good for you. That, that, that is so inspiring. I have so much respect for people whenever they come out with a new book. And uh, I, I'm just curious to know, what was, what was kind of the brainchild for this book? Where, where, did the, where are the roots of this idea coming from? Well, as you mentioned, I've been a corporate strategist for over 20 years. But people would come to me not companies, but individuals saying, everyone says you're a great person to help folks figure out their career and what to do next. So it was something I did on the side. And then finally, over the time, I developed a process that was very powerful. And a good friend and mentor of mine once said, will you just write the darn book? So I finally <laughs> decided to write the darn book. <laughs> oh, thank goodness for friends like that, right? Right. <laughs> so uh, the the title of the book is The Achiever's Guide. So what is your definition of an achiever? 
An achiever is someone who is already doing something that, or has done something that is meaningful for them, that feels like they've reached some level of competence or success or recognition, but they're now saying, gosh, I've been doing what I've been doing for 10 years or 15 years or sometimes 30 years, and they're saying, I have all these experiences, I have resources, I have skills and talents, and I want to be more intentional. I want to feel more satisfied, more connected to what I do, and I want my work and the rest of my life to fit together instead of seeing it as my work's over here and my life is over here. Yeah. So what are some of those things in our lives that stop us from becoming an achiever? Well, we all have limiting beliefs, every single person in this world. And uh, those limiting beliefs come about from our experiences. So we may see, uh, for example, there was a young man I worked with, and his father, he was, a, he was an inventor, and he had all kinds of in ideas for reforming his industry, but he was very much an introvert and never wanted to connect with people who were out there doing the deals. And I said, so let's talk about that. He said, you know, my dad got totally screwed over by these people who were the kind of the in crowd, and I'm never going to let that happen to me. So his vow that he would never connect with people who were very active and outgoing in business meant that he was never going to connect with someone who could actually help him in his business. Does that mm, make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so you that's know- an example. And sometimes... The other thing is we all tend to go with what works for us. And so if you become successful uh, or gotten recognition because you were always the independent one or you were always the organized one or you were always the leader, we tend to get stuck in that, in that way of being instead of saying, are there times when maybe I want to step back and let someone else lead? Are there times when I want to be more collaborative instead of always doing things on my own? Yeah. So, you know, you've you've helped companies work better at progressing. Um, and th- those principles that you used in that work, do they what are they and do they apply to individuals as well? They absolutely do. One of the things that companies do as well as individuals do is we outgrow something. But conditions change and we keep on doing the same thing. I sometimes tell my clients, do you have I'll say, do you have kids? They'll say yes. Have your kids ever outgrown anything that you've bought them? And they laugh. So that size 2 T-shirt protects, keeps warm a size 2 child. But if you put that size 2 T-shirt on a size 5 child, it will restrict and cripple that child. The same thing happens with companies. The same thing happens with people. So periodically, it's important to say, what is it that still serves me? Does this belief still serve me? In a company, it may be, does this structure or this process, or sometimes even these employees, do they still serve where we are now? Or is it time to say we've outgrown that? It doesn't mean that any of what we did in the past was bad. It just means it doesn't fit anymore, just like the child in the shirt. Right. That is that is such a great example. How do we how do we get to that point? Because I think uh, some companies and and some individuals too may not recognize that point where they've outgrown this area of their lives and that they need to make a change. So how do we how do we begin to recognize that we do need to make that change? Well, one of the things I do in in the book and certainly in the process with people is I have people do 
a, a retrospective and to think about what things were easy, fun, good for them at, throughout their life, and then what were the things that were hard or difficult or unpleasant. And from that and the explorations that are in the book, and by the way, we have those explorations that people can download uh, from our website, uh, so it's easy to do. We identify characteristics. There are themes. We have been who we've been in so many ways for so long. And once we can detect those themes, then, uh, so for example, there was a man I worked with uh, years ago. He was, had been very successful. He was a very smart engineer and plant manager, plant engineer. And yet when he was promoted to the management team, he couldn't get along with anybody. And so as we talked, he said, you know, I'm smart, and I hate to ask for help. I think that's a sign of weakness. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about when you were growing up. He said, well, my dad left us, my mom and six kids, when I was still in grammar school. And the only way I succeeded was by never depending on anybody. I just had to put my shoulder to the wheel and keep going. So once I heard that, then he and I were able to say, how does that show up now? Well, it worked great. It kept him safe. It made him successful. But being completely independent, if you're on a team, doesn't work anymore. So one of the things we talked about and one of the things that readers in the book can learn how to do is, is expand their repertoire of responses. Um, and when I think of repertoire, I think about the clothes in your closet. Do you wear a winter coat in the summer or a bathing suit in the winter? No. You have many choices depending on what the circumstances are and this uh, young man that i worked with realized that he could be independent but he didn't always have to be independent so we when we get stuck in the always and never that's a clue that gosh is this still working for me or not or is it time to is it time to consider expanding my wardrobe if you will of, of ways of acting yeah. So where is the, what's a good place to start? Where should a person start on this road to achievement? Well, of course, I would tell you they need to buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. But, uh, I begin with, uh, after the retrospective, I really look at uh, your lifeline and your turning points and high points and low points. The simplest short place is to write down all of the things that you do and say, which are those things that are really energizing to me? We all have things that, even if we're working hard at them, we're stimulated, we're excited about them. So when I'm leading a planning retreat at the end of two days, are my feet tired? Yeah, they're tired, but I'm still energized because I love doing that. When I sit down and write, that's energizing to me. When I work one-on-one -on -one with a client, that's energizing to me. But if you said to me, okay, we have this new software and we want you to install it, we want you to go through and look at what's working and what's not working, and then we want you to teach three people how it works, Jeff, I want to throw myself on the floor and cry. <laughs> Don't make me deal with that. So everybody has those things that are energizing for them, and everybody has those things that are depleting for them. So once you sort those through, then that's a place to start because you want to look at those things that are energizing for you. And then I also have them identify where their deep talents are. And we do that by looking at what you know about, what I call the know-hows, the know, 
the know-hows are the processes you know about, and the know-whats are the contents you know about. So you may know a lot about, uh, you know a lot about uh, being on the radio, but you also know how to engage people in a conversation, ask some questions. You could take that skill into many, and that talent, really, into many different fields. I think too many people limit what they think they can do, and we have far more choices. That was one of the things that inspired me to write Live Large. I could see people limiting what they believed they could do when they had more skills and more talents than they ever imagined they had. Well, I'm really enjoying speaking with you, and let's do this, though. Let's take a break, Elizabeth, and when we come back, I want to continue the conversation and uh, dive a little deeper into some of these principles that you teach in, the, in your new book, and uh, we'll, we'll do that. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Her name is Elizabeth B. Crook, and uh, she's talking to us about The Achiever's Guide to What's Next, her new book. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. We're speaking with Elizabeth B. Crook, author of the critically acclaimed Live Large, an Achiever's Guide to What's Next. And uh, Elizabeth is the CEO of Orchard Advisors. And uh, for over 20 years, she's helped CEOs and entrepreneurs think and act strategically to grow their company's bottom line and have more satisfaction. And she's also been talking to us how we can apply the principles in this book in our own personal lives. Elizabeth, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jeff. So I'm just curious, what, what kind of experiences have you had in your life that have helped you learn some of these principles of success? Well, you know, sometimes I say that we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. I find that's true for individuals as well as for companies. Uh, one of the things, one of the reasons that we fail to learn can be that we're so ashamed of our failures that we never stop to say, what did I learn? What did I come to realize about this? What were the factors that led me to fail? Uh, or led me to have a less than optimum outcome. We can also learn from our successes, but again, it takes asking that question, what were the factors that led me to be successful in this situation? The more we're able to ask those questions, the more we're able to say, oh, we can, yeah, now I get it. You remember the old V8 uh, Juice commercial where the guy slaps himself on the head and says, oh, I could have had a V8. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Life can be sort of like that. You slap your head on, slap yourself on the head and say, oh, I could have asked for help. Yeah. Instead of struggling along by myself, trying to do it all myself, I could have actually asked for help. That's an example. Yeah. So I want to get into some of the examples you use in the book. You mentioned finding values. Why is it important for an individual to find their values when on the road to success? Our values, we have them, whether we have ever written them down or not. And I say this to companies as well as individuals. There are ways that we behave that 
are very much aligned with how we feel and what we believe. The reason I think it's important for us to discern what our values are, when we come to those points in life when we say, gosh, should I do this or maybe I shouldn't do that, our values give us a guide. There is a very successful uh, person that I've worked with for a number of years who has been actually struggling with some issues in his personal life, and he has been saying, well, I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if that's fair. And I said, well, let's look at what your values say. And frankly, he's been dating three women at once is actually the issue. (laughs) And he's wondering if one got mad at him. I mean, I can certainly understand that as a woman to find out that somebody I was dating seriously was seeing three other women at the same time. And she got mad at him, and he said, I could never put up with somebody who would get mad or look on my cell phone uh, to check my, my text and see that I was talking to other people. And I said, well, let's go back and let's look at your values. And so when he looked at his values, one of them was being, uh, being, uh, being responsible and being a person of an integrity. And so I said, help me understand how you're going out with three different people, each one believing that they were, had an exclusive relationship with you. How does that fit with your value of integrity? I'm confused. Right, yeah. And he said, well, uh... Uh, I guess that really doesn't fit, does it? And I said, what do you think? And he said, no, it really doesn't. So I didn't have to say, hey, listen, this is a bad idea. All I had to do was say, let's look at your values, who you are, how you are behaving and how you're being when you're being your very best self. Yeah. Do you... So when we have those values, we will, in effect, take a financial hit to honor those values. I have a client uh, who shortly after we started working and they had agreed to a a year-long contract got back to me and said, we have a company, we have to put this in abeyance. We've had a major shift in our business. Now, could I have held them to the contract? Yes. But the point was that one of my values is fairness and delivering value to my clients. So I said, let's suspend it. And let's stay in touch to see when it would suit you to, for us to come back together. But will I chase him for the money? Absolutely not, because that's not one of my values. I will try and be helpful while they move through this period of difficulty. Okay, that, that's a great example of, of, of you being uh, consistent with your values and practices. And you gave an example of somebody that maybe, uh, you know, they're – their values were not in sync with what they were actually doing and saying. Do you find that's uh, common in the people that you work with where when they really uh, are honest with themselves, their values are not in line with their practices? I think what happens is they forget. I don't think it is an intentional, malicious thing, but I believe that having those values to be reminded of. So one of the values in my company is there are no elephants in the room. We have the hard conversations, and st- but stay connected. There was a situation, in fact, now many of my clients laugh. They say, you're the one who tells us the hard truth, but you tell us a way that we can hear it. There was a, a situation some years ago, and I had a 
man who was doing some contract work for us, and we had disagreed about how a situation should be handled. And, uh, you know, not every consultant is right for every client. And so I had intervened, not intervened, I had accompanied him uh, in a program that he was doing for a client, even though he really didn't want me to come. And at the end of the day, when we were debriefing the event, he was furious. I could see the steam practically coming out of his ears. And I said, what is the matter? He said, well, I didn't want you to be there. And I said, I had spoken with the client, another person at the client's, and they said, no, we would expect you to be there. And he said, well, I overheard the president of the company saying that he wasn't sure about you. And I said, why didn't you tell me that? He said, well, I just didn't, I just didn't know how to tell you. And I thought it might hurt your feelings. And I said, what is our number one value? And he said, no elephants in the room. We tell the truth, but we stay connected. And I said, you didn't honor that value. Now, it wasn't an ending in that moment, but we did part company because I knew that that was somebody with whom, who didn't share the values of our company. And so he couldn't be part of our team. Is he a bad person? Absolutely not. Have I supported him to go on and be successful in other places? Absolutely yes. But he couldn't be part of this team because the ability to have the hard conversations about what's really going on is a core part of my belief. It's how I work with my clients. It's how I work with my staff. I believe that when you tell people a tr- the, what you see, what you observe, in a way that they can hear it, not as an attack, but this is what I see, help me understand what that is, then it opens up all kinds of possibilities. So that was a hard decision for me. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you know, in your book, you also talk about uh, the bullseye target. What can you tell us more about the bullseye target? Well, whether it's in business or life, as they say, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. <laughs> and uh, I call it the bullseye because the, bull, the target is what you're aiming for. And in the book, what we do is we, we, ask, we invite people to think about all the different roles they play. It may be as a business owner. It may be as a, as a family member or a community leader. Or uh, some people will say, I'm a physical being, a spiritual being an emotional being. Uh, some people have, you know, big hobbies. They may be a, a marathoner or an artist or a photographer that represents important parts of, of their identity. So when we look at the different roles that we play and then we think for each role, what do I want to be related to this role? Do I want to be you know, loved and adored and respected? Uh, what are the things that we want to have? I want to have my own website, or I want to have a vacation home for my family, or I want to have a, uh, uh, you know, a, a trip to Europe. Uh, and then we say, what do you want to accomplish? I want to learn a new language or write a book, or I want, as a business owner, I want to make X amount of money. And then what is the impact or the legacy? Some older you know, people, when they get into their... 50s or 60s, and I have clients that old who say, yeah, I want to think about what the legacy is or the impact I want to make. What's the impact you want to make uh, in your family or with your employees? Do you want to be able to sell your business? Do you want to be able to, to have a, a community 
program that you've started? Do you want to shift some attitude? And the more we can think about where we'd like to be in three to five years or even longer, then we can aim, we can steer in that direction. One of the big things that um, that I really I think is an important part of my work, both with clients, uh, both with individuals and companies, is to say, what are our criteria for success? How do we judge when we have gotten where we are, and how do we filter? Because every individual in the world has 500,000 things that they could do, or as we say here in the South, that they might could do. And uh, <laughs> it's important to know what are, the, what are the handful of things that are most important so we can really focus on those. Elizabeth, as we wrap up the interview here, what is the one thing that that people can do today to get a, to get that spark started in their lives, to get them in the right direction on that path toward achievement? I think the I think the one thing they can do is to sit down and say, "Well, I'm thinking it's different for different people, but I think." I think the one thing they can do is to identify what is something that I care about, write it down, and then write what is one thing I can do in the next two days that will lead me closer to that. Because one of the things that I do in the book is help people get to action. There are lots of things that will tell you, think this, do that, believe this. But if you can't take those ideas into action, none of it will matter. So if you set, set one goal, and then what are you going to do in the next week that are, that's going to take you closer to that goal? That's great, yeah. Instead of just thinking big right off the bat and, you know, not uh, not accomplishing anything, just setting those smaller attainable goals right now that, that can get us headed in the right direction. Well, Elizabeth, yeah. we, we really appreciate your time on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. The name of the book is Live Large, The Achiever's Guide to What's Next. Her name is Elizabeth B. Crook, who is the CEO of Orchard Advisors. And, and uh, we wish you all the, the best of luck on your new book. It's out today. So look for that book and uh, get on that path toward achievement today by making those small goals, writing them down and, and following through. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We just finished uh, speaking with a wonderful author of a new book called Live Large, the Achiever's Guide to What's Next. It was Elizabeth B. Crook. Go check it out. It's on sale today. And uh, now we're going to do some empty news. Not empty as in substance, but MT news. And uh, this one is something that you'd probably see on an episode of Cops. A Pasco County, Florida Sheriff's Office sergeant who thought he'd stumbled across the scene of an accident Tuesday afternoon soon learned his initial assessment didn't quite hit the mark. According to the sheriff's office, Sergeant M. Rosenblum spotted several vehicles stopped on the side of the road. Believing he'd found a possible crash scene, Rosenblum began to notify dispatch about the situation when one of the vehicles pulled over on the side of the road uh, started to move. Rosenblum's body-worn camera captured the action as a brown Chevrolet pickup truck backed up around the stopped vehicles. 
That's when authorities say things started to get weird. The driver stared at Sergeant Rosenblum before he rapidly accelerated and reversed, intentionally striking the front of Sergeant Rose- Rosenblum's vehicle. The sheriff's office spokesman uh, explained, after smashing into the cruiser, the pickup's driver jumped out, let the vehicle roll away on its own, and proceeded to dance in the middle of the road. The video showed. The man was wearing nothing but boxer shorts, the sheriff's office noted. When Rosenblum tried to make heads or tails out of the situation, the scantily clad man strolled away, the video showed. Rosenblum, however, tried to calm the man down and bring him into custody. The man, the email said and video showed, didn't comply right away. At one point, the male charged at Sergeant Sergeant Rosenblum, who then deployed his taser and incapacitated him. With the help of one of the bystanders, the man was handcuffed. And, uh, yeah, like I said, something that you'd probably hear on Cops. I'm guessing there may have been some substance abuse issues there. Did not say in the story. Just to guess. Just assume. I go by what's reported (laughs) only. No assumptions. No assumptions. Okay. Anything else we we should uh, talk about, Terry? Um, This story I found... Uh, it was actually a week ago, but uh, it's interesting. An apparent ambush of ISIS militants is making headlines, if only because those that overpowered them were actually wild boar. Ooh. A tribal leader in northern Iraq tells the Times of London the animals killed three members of the Islamic State and injured five others Sunday. His best guess is that the militants were preparing to launch an ambush of their own near a Kurdish checkpoint. Uh, the area is dense with reeds, which makes it good for hiding in. But, you know, for so they were hiding in the tall weeds, the militants, and so were the boar. And so the boar attacked. <laughs> so they, 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 uh, some refugees that were fleeing the area spotted the bodies. Um, some Kurdish intelligence officials were, were talking about it. And uh, they said ISIS responded by killing as many wild boar in the area as they could. <laughs> this sounds like another show you'd see on Fox. When good boars go bad. When bur- yeah. yeah. I mean, you <laughs> when see boars these- attack. I don't know. It's uh, – there's different stories like that that come out. We talked about um, some dental hygiene. Yes. Before about how to brush your teeth and stuff. But some good news is some technology is coming out that could eliminate root canals. Ooh, Have you had a root yes. canal before? No. Cole, root canal? No, sir. I had a root beer once. I think my mother and my father put my dentist's – kids through college because <laughs> they had so many root canals it's like yeah i'm in high school and college you, you get a note hey uh at the dentist getting a root canal I'm like, wow seriously how many, how many roots do you have left yeah usually it's like gone fishing but gone root canaling so they're saying uh, uh researchers at the weiss institute at harvard university i'm saying it wrong but you know what are you gonna do uh <laughs> university of nottingham so harvard and nottingham they are looking at it. So they decided to end the war on cavities and create a biomaterial that not only repairs teeth but regenerates the, the uh, dentin that gets destroyed with tooth decay. Dentin's mm. a part of your tooth. This could be the end of replacement fillings and root canals as we know it. So when you go in and get a tooth fixed, the material dentist used to fill a tooth – it could be metal or a composite base. It damages the tooth by doing that. It also breaks down over time, and you wind up having to go back and get that filling replaced 10 to 15 years down the road. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the tooth needs to have a, a root canal, a deeper filling done, or worse, an extraction and an implant to br- or a bridge to put in. So all the different you know dental 
dental dental surgery type uh, methods they have is all because our teeth just decay over time, so they right. continually have to update them. So no matter how much you brush, floss, or take care, take care of your teeth, having an old school or current filling is just going to damage your tooth somewhere down the line. This new synthetic biomaterial works in conjunction with the pulp tissue that is already inside the tooth. It stimulates the stem cells it comes in contact with, and the process of healing and regeneration begins. It's kind of like getting a... a a new doctor, but with less time. Uh, it says a new uh, a new Doctor Who, but with less time travel involved. Not sure what the <laughs> reference to that is. I realize it's Doctor Who, but yeah, whatever. So in other words, it's like it's, it's, it was science mumbo jumbo. They're, trying, what, they're <laughs> trying to give you uh, a better way, a biomaterial that won't decay your tooth, but still give you the same effect as a filling. Hopefully, avoiding a root canal down the road. Mm, I wonder if dentists are going to like this. Or if they'll just charge you they'll extra just for charge this. charge you more to yeah. make up the difference. <laughs> or if only four out of five dentists will like yes. it. Yes. That's <laughs> normally the statistic. Uh, and by the way, four out of five dentists approve of that joke that you just made, Cole. The other one has no sense of humor. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show, where we continue to celebrate National Teacher Day. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the third and final hour of Matt's show. Once again, Dr. Mattless, which is sad because yesterday he celebrated his birthday. Hopefully you heeded our advice and jumped on Twitter and sent him a nice tweet. He's uh, still incapacitated, so you could still do that, I guess. And, you know, better better late than never, as they say. And, uh, you know, who wouldn't take a week's full of birthday wishes? Hashtag get well soon. Very good, yes. Hashtag get well soon, because we miss him here on the show. But we will soldier on and... Uh, We're lucky because we get to talk to our health evangelist, Dr. Ron Hager, who is an associate professor here at Brigham Young University. And uh, notice there I didn't say BYU University this time. The Department of Redundancies Department is (laughs) narrowing down. And, uh, you know, it's, it's good that he's here on the show today because, as Cole shared with us, this month is Hypertension Awareness Month. Notice I didn't say Hypertension Appreciation Month this time. I'm getting there, slowly but surely. You're waking up as the show goes on. It's always a good idea. Now that it's almost over, I'm finally awake. We're also celebrating National Teacher Day. So uh, just think about some of the great teachers you've had throughout your life. I've had some great ones. I'm sure we all have. And, uh, you know, your kids probably have some great ones too. So support your teachers. Appreciate them and let them know that you appreciate them. Anyway, all that fun ahead, we'll also be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. I'm curious to know what they're going to want to talk about on their show today. They're probably not going to want to dwell too much on the uh, sweep of the Jazz and the NBA playoffs. But, uh, yeah, so our discussion of them will last just about as long as their stint in the playoffs. Hopefully that wasn't too harsh. Uh, but all of that ahead. But first, we're going to talk to our good friend, Terry South, who's going to tell us what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? 
A New Orleans resident is suing the city in order to prevent officials from touching, removing, or doing anything with a statue of Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard. The monument is one of four honoring Confederate military military leaders and uh, and battles that the city has said it will take down. One statue commemorating the Battle of Liberty Place has already been removed by contractors wearing tactical vests and masks working in the middle of the night. Ah. They were under, uh, I believe, police protection. The police had uh, men stationed on rooftops around the area to make sure that no one would try to attack the construction workers. As they were moved, it's kind of a volatile situation in New Orleans as they're moving <laughs> Confederate uh, statues. Richard M- Marksbury, a, former, a founder of a group that opposes the removal of Confederate statues, told reporters Monday that Bo- the Beauregard statue at the entrance to City Park is on private, not city land, and thus cannot be brought down. A judge has rejected an immediate block of the removal, and a hearing is scheduled for later on Wednesday. Interesting. So the cities kind of have a bunch of tension. I, I saw the pictures the morning they took down the first set of statues. Yeah. And I was like, is he wearing a flak jacket? He's wearing a bulletproof jacket. So the guy's out there wow. running you know, construction equipment in a bulletproof jacket for fear of being attacked by somebody. Oh, my goodness. Police protection and all this stuff. That'll be interesting to see how that turns out. I don't know. So in other news, a study, study after study have shown that where Americans live has a big effect on how long they live. A new study out Monday found the difference uh, works out to as much as 20 years. And it also shows that obesity and diabetes caused by poor diet and lack of exercise could be responsible responsible for a big chunk of that difference in life expectancy. The longest life expectancy up to 87 years, uh, where do you think in this country is going to lead you to the longest life? 87 years, I'm guessing... Oh, either someplace on the East Coast or the West Coast. I'm going to go with Portland, Oregon. No, Central Colorado Ski Country. I was close. No, not really. Um, so, uh, you know, clean living, apparently. A lot of outdoors activities, that kind of thing. That's where I was going with the yeah, Portland right. thing. The lowest, where would be the lowest, do you think? Where do you think in this country is the place that will kill you the fastest? Oh, uh, Texas? Yeah, no, Southwest South Dakota. Really? Yeah, 66 years is the the expected lifespan of someone living in southwest South Dakota, with other parts of Dakota's Appalachia and Mississippi River Basin close behind. Overall, they confirmed Americans are living longer. Boys born in 2014 can expect to live to be 77. Girls can expect to live to 81. But there is a 20-year difference between lifespans, and they're looking at a country... By, by county when they go county by county. That's an average of five years longer than in 1980. So what they're saying is Colorado, 87 years. South Dakota, not that far away from Colorado, right? Yeah. South Dakota, 66 years, has to do with access to health care, pollution, all those yeah. different factors that they weigh in. But uh, kind of interesting on that. So if my elderly parents are in Appalachia right now, can yeah. they move to Colorado and just get that extra 20? Like. I don't know. I don't know. The damage is done. I don't know what the bonus is that way. Is that where they are? Mm -hmm. Oh. They have access to health care? Yes. Probably. You you hesitated. (laughs) I don't know. That's usually what the biggest factor is, is what's the health care like in that region? And when you get into more rural areas, it becomes more difficult to reach at times. So uh, uh, this one, for those of you out there who have been wondering what their body type would look like as a body wash bottle. A body wash bottle. Anybody here ever wonder that? Because it's here. Uh, it says, you're in luck. For a limited time, Dove Body Soap in the UK is selling its body washes in bottles of six different shapes and sizes intended to mimic 
the diversity of women's body types. Okay. Some of the bottles are pear-shaped, some are hourglass-shaped, some are apple-shaped, and others are straight up and down. So it's not like a Costco-sized pack where you get all of them. You no. get to choose. Yeah, they okay. just be on a shelf. So previously, the body wash came in a bottle that was shaped like, well, you know, a body wash bottle. Uh, Dove is hoping that molding its plastic body wash dispensers into a variety of shapes will show how beauty is diverse and diversity is beauty. How do you think that promotion is going? Uh, not well. I wouldn't want to buy my body wash body type. Right. So however well-intentioned the campaign is, it sparked backlash on Twitter almost immediately. <laughs> Some found the new bottles amusing. Others said they missed the point, encouraging women to be defined by their body type. Others pointed out that the exaggerated shapes don't really represent bodies. And if you look at the bottles, they don't. But, you know, whatever. Yeah. It seems like a dumb idea. See, I see the I see the reasoning behind, you know, changing advertising where, you know, you're putting women and men that are a bit heavier. Yes. Because that's more realistic. But, right. you know, yeah, I don't – as a consumer, I don't think I would want some – like if I were, you know, obese, I, I, I don't know that I'd want to buy an obese body wash bottle. Yeah, you're like, I'm pear-shaped. I want the pear-shaped bottle, of course. No, why would you do that? <laughs> and I'm very yeah. small, and so I don't want just a small yeah. body. I need a lot of you know, right. body wash. It's yeah. yeah, if cheaper I were, if I were I a more. twig, I would want the bigger one because I, I'm a very value-based person. Mm-hmm. It seems ridiculous. So um, <laughs> Dove has had several marketing campaigns that have flopped upon arrival. They've been really, really bad. Now, I will ideas, try so. their Dove ice cream bars. Um, is pizza healthy? Wait, they do. Yes. Dove has a soap bar, not an ice cream bar. Sorry. No. There's, oh, they there's, do. There's Dove ice cream, too. Yeah. Oh, good. Because I thought for a minute I had eaten uh, soap. So moving on. Is pizza healthy? Yes. Yes, because I like it. No, I mean, seriously. <laughs> Could you make an argument that pizza is healthy? Well, you mentioned earlier uh, that your wife makes a pizza crust out of cauliflower. Out of cauliflower. I, it can be healthy, but overall, no. Generally, I mean, you hear people like in this article is talking about um, cheese, you get calcium from the cheese, right? True. You get uh, disease-fighting lycopene from the tomatoes. Yes. Which is why ketchup is so good despite the fact that it's pretty much all sugar. Okay. Um, pizza crust made with whole wheat flour instead of you know white flour. Yeah. Right? You end up something more healthy that way. Um, it offers whole grains, fiber, digest slowly, refined grains, all that stuff. So you can use better ingredients, but does that make it healthy? Hmm. No. I don't – it depends on what, what you're – I was talking to my wife about this last night. Everyone – my wife is looking at different diet regimes, different ideas, different yeah. approaches. And everyone's like has like, oh, but you can eat pizza, like Nutrisystem, right? Yeah, I was right. like, oh, you yeah, can yeah. have a candy bar. And it's like, but it's their candy bar, which means they've cut corners on the actual ingredients to make sure. it healthy. <laughs> I mean, it's still a, like chocolate and stuff, and it's a candy bar. but it's, And it's portioned correctly. Yeah, so yeah. at some point you get this little tiny morsel of something that is it really satisfying as a candy bar? Does right. it have this weird sort of aftertaste because you're trying to make it healthy? And so um, – you know, one thing people have always said is to get the thin crust because then oh. it's not as much mm-hmm. bread. People like the toppings more than they want bread. Other people like the, the deep dish. Oh, the crust is the favorite part for me. And then you're eating like a loaf of bread with your pizza. Yeah. So it's like which way do you want to go with this? And at some point you just need to understand you're eating pizza, right? Stop trying to make it healthy. Just eat a pizza and then, you know, go back to whatever you were doing before if you're on some sort of diet. But everyone's trying to 
make it and they start listing like the calories and for they go but you only you're only going to eat one slice of pizza no one eats one slice of pizza never one slice of pizza is wholly unsatisfying never happened cuz you look over uh, you know on the counter or whatever at my house when we have, when we get pizza there's like an entire pizza still there mm-hmm. i've had one piece there's more pizza you don't want to ruin pizza right I don't know. And this says when it comes to kids and pizza, one recent study concluded that pizza consumption among children and adolescents was associated with higher daily caloric intake and higher intake of saturated fats and sodium. The study also found that pizza eaten as a snack or from fast food restaurants have the greatest negative impact on calorie intake. Pizza consumed in schools did not significantly affect children's Ooh. calorie intake, probably because it may not be that nutritionally different from other school entrees. It leaves out the part that it tastes horrible. Yeah. <laughs> the only pizza I got at school that was any good was pizza. They went to a pizza play, a store or whatever, and they yeah. brought in – they had it delivered. Then it was good pizza. Yeah. In elementary school, you could sign up for that program where they deliver Pizza Hut and Taco right. Bell and that was At my great. school, they had pizza. You go into the cafeteria, but then they had sort of an a la carte sort of window where they had all kinds of different items. And they'd always, they'd always have like Pizza Hut delivered. Yeah. And so everyone just went there because the pizza the, the, the school district brought in was gross. As the lunch lady sags her head in, in sadness. I mean, no offense, but I'm sorry. This is the <laughs> – Poor lunch lady. These are the real. So it says frozen pizzas can be a convenient dinner, but they too can have uh, – vary in terms of ingredients and nutritional value. They're also frozen pizza, so it might just be like a hockey puck when you finally get it cooked and you eat it. But I don't know. There's – this it, it, I, again, it comes down to – you have to just realize that it's probably not going to be healthy. Just See, check now, out eat pizza. Now I'm salivating, especially because I know that there is a pizza that we made last night sitting in our refrigerator waiting for me. There you go. But it's you're not really trying good. to you're not trying to pass it off as healthy because it has calcium and some lipoprotein. No, no, I, I I accept that it's pizza, and maybe I don't eat like an entire pizza, right? But I have a few slices, enjoy it, and move on. Have you ever eaten an entire pizza? I have I ever admitted to eating an entire pizza? Right now, have you in your life eaten a like a twelve inch pizza your own self? Just the whole box, you. Nobody else helped you. No. Really? I've come super close. If I haven't, I've done it. Yeah, I'm trying to. I put out my arm trying to gauge twelve inch pizza. You know, like a full large pizza. Full large. See, that's another thing. Large has become increasingly smaller over the years. Um, I came kind of close to eating what is that like a an eight or nine inch pizza last night by myself, mm. Mm. but it was it was uh, my wife has figured out this way to make like a Pizza Hut pizza, you know, where it's like the really oily crust mm-hmm. and so good. Uh, I almost did last night, okay, but I felt like I was going to vomit. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's not probably the best thing to do, but uh, it was one of the I think greater culinary accomplishments of my life when I went through a whole box by myself, looked down and went, wow, look at that. It's all gone. See, I've never had that satisfaction of seeing the empty <laughs> box, but I've gone to a pizza buffet and oh. eaten like oh, yeah. eight, nine, ten slices that would equate to a But again, there's, that's pizza. value-based thinking, you know, like you don't want to lose money. Mm-hmm. You got to so, eat as much as you can. Circling back to the original <laughs> question, is pizza healthy? And is the way we're talking about it, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because if you eat more than, say, maybe two pieces, it's instantly unhealthy. But, but everybody wants to eat that. Also, that oily, greasy kind of pizza that you're mm. salivating over is... Mm. Horrible. Horrible. Yeah, but good. Yes. In the same time. So it's conflicting. 
And going back to what you said, you know, few feelings uh, are greater than the satisfaction that comes from finishing an entire pizza. As we say, as uh, our health evangelist, Dr. Ron Hager, walks into the room. Which is why we I like, brought it up. <laughs> we like to save this type of news for, for his arrival. And we time it to the second. And, uh, yeah, then he rebukes us and calls us to repentance since he is our health evangelist. We'll continue the discussion with Dr. Ron Hager when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. you heard the music. You know, I don't even think Dr. Ron Hager was scheduled to visit us today, but he heard this discussion we were having on uh, have we ever eaten an entire pizza by ourselves, and he came running across campus into the studio to rebuke us. Uh, if you're if you're here on the music right now, then you know that Dr. Ron Hager is here in the house with us today. He's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University, and his area of expertise is chronic disease prevention. Ron, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks. It's always great to see you. And, you know, Cole is very, uh, he is very observant. He noticed that this month is Hypertension Awareness Month. Yeah. And I believe you're going to be talking to us a little bit about hypertension today. Is that correct? Yeah, we're going to do that. I actually uh, was not aware that it was, that May was... I mean, I guess there's there's probably multiple things that happen in May, right? There's yeah, it's not just it, it's not just hypertension awareness month. It's uh, awareness of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two being I, out in theaters. I, think, uh, <laughs> I, try, I tried to get some tickets for that. They're sold out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a couple of questions. I understand you want to ask me, right? Leading yeah. into this, okay? Yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm just curious about about some things um, about your car. I assume you have a car. I do have a car. Yeah, I was wondering if you knew how many quarts of oil your car takes. You know, uh, uh, one or two. One or two. That, I, that That's could... how many I put in when I'm, you know, adding oil. <laughs> adding oil to it. Yeah. Or or what or what kind of what type of oil? Do you know what weight oil generally your car should have? You know, if Matt were here, he would know the answers to these types of would questions because he he obsesses over his car. Does he? I didn't yeah. know that. I know that a car has oil in it. Okay. <laughs> What about what about the best tire pressure? What you, do you know? What your tire pressure is? Isn't it something like forty psi? I don't know. Okay, because it's it, not my car. We've been filling up a lot of tires lately, so <laughs> I think you? it's something okay. like that. It sounds like you might like could use yeah. a new car. Uh, do you know? How, you know how many miles per gallon you get in your car? I want to say I get about twenty. Twenty. So that that's that that seems pretty reasonable. Yeah, but you don't know that for sure. Uh, I've never done the math, but it's okay. a Toyota, so it's about twenty. Okay. Do you know what your blood pressure is? No, I don't. No, you don't. No. So, so you don't know. It, it seems well, to me that you know a few things about your car, but not, not, but some things you maybe don't know for sure yeah. about your car. See, I'm, I'm always told these numbers when I go to the doctor, uh-huh. or if I'm, you know, uh, donating plasma or blood or something. They'll they'll tell me these numbers. I don't. They and but they tell me as if I should know exactly what they mean. Yeah. Yeah. What about and your I cholesterol? Do you, do you know what your cholesterol level is? Total cholesterol? 
That would be a no. What about some of the, the subfractions? Do you know your high-density lipoprotein level or your triglyceride level? I understand a, I understand a couple of those words. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I would ask you if you know what you're going to have for dinner tonight, but I, oh, I assume I you're going to finish off the pizza. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. So absolutely. you do know that. Yes. Okay. Well, well, my whole, my whole point in this um, is just to, to help, help people realize that, you know, there's a few things they probably should know. Mm-hmm. Just, just like, you know, if you wanted your car to last a good long time. You know, there's a few things you'd want to know about your car. Right. And the same thing kind of applies to your body. It seems like a lot of people, to me, actually are more interested in taking care of their cars than they are their bodies. Mm. My mother used to tell me when I was younger, I've never forgotten this. Uh, I don't know if she made this up or if it's been around for a while, but I attribute it to her. She said, if you don't take care of your body, where will you live? Oh, interesting. Isn't that interesting? That's so, nice. And, and, you yeah. might, and you could say the same thing about a lot of things, right? If you don't take care of your car, what will you drive? You know, right. that, that kind of stuff. Mm. So the idea here is that, you know, we ought to know some things. We ought to know some basic things. And given that May is Hypertension Awareness Month, I thought maybe we could spend a little time talking about that because I, I know a lot of people who deal with hypertension and almost exclusively they take medication for it, which is not a bad thing because – it can be controlled with medication, but the even more interesting thing is, you know, besides the fact that every medication has side effects, yeah, is that uh, lifestyle can also be used very effectively to control hypertension. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, I, you know, and at some point, I hope that we can figure out a way for me to understand what these numbers mean and, okay. and how I can get them to a more manageable figure. I just okay. assume that they're probably not where they need to be. Well, But again, I don't know. Yeah, well, you, you I'm always check. surprised when I go to the yeah. doctor and they're like, yeah, you're in great health. Really? It, well, you know, there's no reason a person shouldn't know their blood pressure, um, even if they don't get, you know, assessed by, you know, a nurse in the doctor's office or something like that. They, you know, most pharmacies, especially at these... Um, you know, stores like, uh, you know, like a Rite Aid or a Walgreens yeah. or something like that. Uh, a lot of times uh, you can get your blood pressure checked there for free, either with one of these sort of self-administered kiosk kinds of things mm-hmm. that you sit mm-hmm. down in and stick your arm in. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, you can walk into just about any kind of a health-related place and just say, hey, could I get my blood pressure checked? And most people uh, that work there, you know, if they're capable of doing that, they'd be more than happy to do it. Do they, do they ever offer you any advice or give you any type of literature? Because, you know, you walk into the pharmacy and you just assume, oh, here's the person that's going to throw some pills in a bottle for me and tell me when to take them. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I guess most of the time if, you know, if you say you got, say you checked your blood pressure at one of these kiosks in a little pharmacy store or something like that, and you said, you know, wow, my blood pressure is high, what should I do? The pharmacist or the pharmacy tech or somebody would probably say, "Well, you should probably follow up with your doctor." Yeah, you know, and, and that's yeah. and that's always the safest thing. But my point is, everybody should know, you know, what their blood pressure is, uh, and you know, and if it's high on a particular day, that 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 could be attributed to a variety of things. It could be attributed to some kind of an acute illness. It could be attributed to maybe some medication you're taking. It could be attributed to some stress or anxiety you're experiencing. So blood pressure can fluctuate. So you know, ideally, you'd want to get it checked kind of regularly so you could sort of average it out and, yeah. and find out what a true resting blood pressure is. So what is regularly then? What so, would you define so, as regularly? Well, according to the, you know, the medical community, 
uh, a healthy blood pressure or a normal blood pressure um, is uh, the, the, there's two numbers for blood pressure, systolic and diastolic. Systolic's the higher number, and that's the pressure basically that's in the arteries when the heart is contracting or, or, or you know, the blood is being pushed through the arteries. So the pressure's highest at that point. And then uh, even though the heart doesn't really ever rest, uh, sometimes I hear it said that in between beats, you know, there's the residual pressure in the arteries. That's the lower number. And, and having a systolic blood pressure of less than 120, mm-hmm. this is pressures uh, measured by millimeters of mercury. It's, it's, uh, it's just how much, um, you know, force is needed in, in this cuff they put on your arm, yeah. you know, to elevate a column of mercury. And then the lower number, diastolic blood pressure, should be less than 80. So, hmm. less, so less than 120 over 80. Now, I want to make a point here just really quickly um, because if you went into the doctor and let's say you had your, you know, you just went in for a regular physical and the nurse or the PA or somebody uh, took your blood pressure, usually the doctor doesn't do it, but uh, somebody did, and, and you said, uh, what, what was my blood pressure? And you should ask, by the way. Oftentimes they just come in, take your blood pressure or do whatever assessment they're going to do, and then they just write something down and walk out. And I know some people are kind of intimidated, you know, they don't feel like they can ask, like, oh, boy, you know, that's private information. <laughs> well, it is private information, but it's your private information. And so, you're paying for it. Yeah, so you should you should be uh, more than willing to ask, you know, and say, what was my blood pressure? But if you were told, for example, uh, t- your blood pressure was 118 over 78, okay, that's less than 120 over 80, and and you would say, was that good? And you would be told, oh, yeah, that's that's really good. You know, because we we like to see it less than 120 over 80. But I want to make a point here, uh, and that is that uh, even though you might have a normal blood pressure, uh, you know, and and let's just talk about systolic blood pressure, that higher number. Uh, So if it's less than 120, you're considered normal. Uh, But if you have, um, and and, and this comes from some research that's been conducted, Uh, if you you set... uh, uh, a systolic blood pressure of 112 or less as kind of a reference group. So compared to that number, uh, if you had a blood pressure of 112 to 117, which is less than 120, mm-hmm. you're at a 33% increased risk of stroke. Oh, my. Yeah. And, and if, your blood press, if your systolic blood pressure was 118 to 120, okay, which would still be considered a normal range, 56% increased risk of stroke. Oh, my goodness. So, so even though you might be told, you know, hey, you're less than 120, you're good, you know, even like 118 or something, you could still be at an increased risk. So I like to kind of say to people that the lower your blood pressure is, the better off you are. Now, obviously, blood pressure can get so low that it's sure. not healthy. That's, yeah. Those are actual medical conditions as well. So we have to be realistic about this. But the goal should be you know, to get your blood pressure as, as low as you can um, and, and, not, and not just say, you know, well, hey, 118, you know, that's pretty dang good. Yeah. Because that even carried, even that compared to people with slightly lower blood pressure carries an increased risk of stroke. And then if you consider some of the higher numbers, you know, they, they, they stage hypertension. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're greater than 140 over greater than 90, uh, you know, that's, that, that's, that's a significant level of hypertension. Right. But, but if you were, if you had a systolic blood pressure of 151, which is not uncommon in our society, so so that is considered hypertensive. Your increase, your your stroke risk increases 
7,210%. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so it's not really a matter of if you're going to have a stroke. It's just kind of a matter of when you're going to have a stroke. So you gave the example of going into the doctor's office and, you know, giving them, you know, asking for your your blood pressure and them saying, oh, you're good, you're fine. Does it happen where doctors are just not taking the time to educate their uh, their patients on, you know, yes, you're you're within the the normal range, but you're also at an increased rate rate uh, increased rate of uh, stroke, like you said. Some doctors may do that. In my experience, most do not. Most just go with the established cut points. Really, and they say, you know, and and the cut point for hypertension, like I said, is a systolic of 140 or more, mm-hmm. and a diastolic, and it's really and or, and or a diastolic of 90 or more. So. You know, you could be, uh, you know, one one thirty systolic, which would be prehypertensive, but you could be ninety five with diastolic, which would be hypertensive, and you would be classified as hypertensive. So it it it's 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 not just both of those numbers have to be above a certain point; it's just one of them. Yeah. And, and like I said, usually you'd want to have it checked on more than one occasion, just in case there's some kind of anomaly or some kind of thing going on in your life that may cause an elevation in blood pressure. Yeah. You know, there's a thing called the white coat syndrome. You know, a person goes into the doctor's office, there's kind of a heightened state of stress or anxiety. Sure. You know, am I going to get a shot today? What's going to happen to me today? And, you know, that alone can raise your blood pressure. So normally your blood pressure in, in in a situation outside of the doctor's office is okay, but you go to the doctor's office like, oh, you know, am I going to be okay in here? Yeah. And, and that can raise your blood pressure. So it's always a good idea to get it checked, you know, at least twice on two separate occasions. But I encourage people to check their blood pressure regularly. It's not that hard to do. And even if you want to make a slight investment, you know, they make these electronic blood pressure cuffs, which are, you know, they're calibrated, they're they're, you know, they're accurate, and you know you can buy those at these pharmacy stores, you, or you can get them online even cheaper. Um, you know, I've seen them for thirty, forty, fifty bucks. You put some batteries in it, and you can check your blood pressure all you want. You know, huh. for, for years. Then you don't have to go to Rite Aid every time you want to do it. Yeah, something like that, exactly. (laughs) Well, Ron, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, you've got a couple of interesting studies that I wanted to talk more about. Okay. And then basically, I'm hoping that you can share with us what we can do to fix these numbers, because I'm sure for a lot of people, they're not where they need to be. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we'll we'll continue uh, our discussion here with Dr. Ron Hager here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. If you're hearing that music, it's because we're we're getting some gentle rebuking here from our health <laughs> evangelist, Ron Hager, who's an associate professor here at BYU. And we've been talking about hypertension. And during the break, you, you started talking to me about some of these studies that you've brought with you here today that are so fascinating. And I want to I hear the reasoning behind the findings, too. Okay. All right. So yeah. what do you have for us? Well... There were, one of my favorite studies, uh, and the reason I've, I've looked into this and looked this up is because in my chronic disease prevention class, we spent some time talking about hypertension, and, and it's, really a, it's really a cultural thing. Uh, you know, from what I've discovered uh, in the research literature, I mean, you, there's, there's, there's no shortage of research on hypertension, how to control it, and so forth. Uh, in fact, about 30% of the adult population of the United States is hypertensive, and another, 30, wow, yeah. another, another 30% are prehypertensive, so they're on their way to becoming mm-hmm. hypertensive. 
you know, and uh, you know, only about uh, thirty-five to forty thousand deaths uh, annually can be attributed. And I say only. I mean, that's not not that forty thousand people dying is insignificant, right. but 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 th- that can be directly attributed to hypertension. But hypertension contributes to more than seven hundred thousand deaths annually through things like heart 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 yeah. heart attack, yeah. stroke. So so we talk about this in my class and. I thought, you know, because my class is about lifestyle and chronic disease prevention, not about, you know, treatment. It's more about prevention. Um, I, I, I did a little research. I came across an article published in 1929 in The Lancet, which is a, a, a medical journal that still exists today, uh, called Blood Pressure in the African Native. And essentially, this was an observational study, but a group of demographers and physicians, you know, people who wanted to understand some things, traveled over to Africa, and they looked at uh, uh, various African natives ranging in age from 15 to 60 and over. They broke them into age categories like 15 to 19, 20 to 24, and so on, all the way up to 60 and over. And then they measured their blood pressure and, uh, and some other things. And what they found is that the older people got, the lower their blood pressure was. And then they compared that finding to um, the normal blood pressures that are seen in European and American populations. Mm-hmm. And it's no surprise they found exactly the opposite. The older people right. got, the higher their blood pressure got. And, of course, they attributed it to uh, lifestyle. Yeah. E- everything from uh, activity, maintaining a healthy weight, uh, the things that they ate, uh, how, you know, how stressed they were. Um, in fact, they make some comments in this uh, old article from 1929 uh, that uh, they noted, you know, they didn't do any kind of official assessment on, say, stress or anxiety, but they noted that, uh, you know, these these were pretty relaxed, comfortable uh, people, um, you know, didn't have to meet a lot of deadlines, I suppose. <laughs> and they were probably catching their own food too, right? H- hunter-gatherers. Yeah. yeah. Depending on which group of African native they were looking at, some were more hunters, some were more gatherers, some were some of both. Um, and then and then another study uh, that I also found uh, that, is, that is also really fascinating, um, and th- this comes from an article published in Hypertension in 1997, but it's a follow-up study uh, that had been conducted some years before um, and this is in uh, a group of people called the Kuna Indians. They live on an island chain, the San Blas Island chain off the coast of Panama. And this, this study involves some, some, uh, some migration data collection, which is kind of fascinating. So they looked at the lifetime island dwellers on, uh, on this island chain off the coast of Panama. And again, same thing as in the African Native study. They found that the older people got, the lower their blood pressure uh, became. And, but they also looked at people who had uh, uh, immigrated or migrated off of the island chain onto the mainland of Panama. And they looked at two groups. One group had moved in to uh, a community on the outskirts of Panama City called Cunanega. And it was a, a community developed basically for uh, these type of indigenous people where they could go and sort of maintain their culture and their traditions. And... Uh, and and I guess to the extent that they 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 could they did but they also apparently adopted some of the you know traditions outside of their culture on the yeah. islands because they found that across the age groups blood pressure went up not just a little bit but I mean hypertension was non-existent among the people who were lifetime island wow. dwellers when they moved to 
this uh, Kunanega, this uh, social community, uh, blood pressure uh, prevalence went up dramatically. Then they also looked at a group who said, you know, I don't want to, I want to leave the islands and I don't want to go to Kunanega. I'm going to Panama City. And, you know, there's maybe lots of reasons people would do that, you know, better jobs, uh, you know, or they just, you know, they just wanted more advanced technology or whatever it is. But blood pressures across those age groups went up even more than Mm. they did, than they did in Kunanega. Um, And so, you know, you can't really say, uh, well, you know, this is, this is genetic or, or, or whatever. I mean, because these people genetically are matched. They're the same. They're all from the same, uh, you know, ethnicity or race or whatever you want to call it. And, and so, but they migrate. And they adopt a different pattern yeah. in their life. So it is an environmental, uh, you know, what you might call a cultural kind of a thing. And, and we, you know, in the United States, we saw in the African study that, you know, in Europeans and Americans, blood pressure went through the roof as far as, you know, as, as people got older. Uh, and, and that's because of our lifestyle, you know. And so, so very, very fascinating. And then one final study I just want to mention really quickly. This was a – I like this study. It was done in, uh, uh, in China. And they looked at blood pressure in 1991, and then they looked at blood pressure again uh, in 2001. Okay, so so this is these people didn't move anywhere, nothing changed, but they looked at it in age groups, prevalence in age groups for both men and women. And what they saw was that there was lower prevalence of hypertension in 1991 in a given age category than there was 10 or 11 years later in the wow. same age category. So this is saying that you know because there there is a kind of a belief that, hey, as you get older, your blood pressure goes up. In fact, yeah. in fact, if you're normotensive, meaning you have a, what would be considered a normal blood pressure at age 55, you have a, a 90% lifetime probability of becoming hypertensive in, wow. the, in the United States. Yeah. And so, so a lot of people just assume, well, hey, as you get older, there's just something you're going to have to deal with. But these studies show that that's not the case. Now, in the China study, we're looking at within we're looking at increasing prevalence within an age category over time, suggesting again that it's an environmental thing that something is changing in these people in terms of their behavior. Yeah. that's what's causing prevalence to go up. Well, Ron, and we've got about a minute left. Tell us what we can do to change our lifestyle outside of becoming hunter gatherers. Controlling weight can be a huge factor. Okay, controlling weight can be a big deal. Um, Overweight can, uh, you know, if a person's overweight or obese, uh, it, it can increase their risk of blood pressure by six times or more. Uh, so trying to do everything you can to maintain a normal, healthy weight, which we've talked about before on the show, is very difficult in this toxic environment yeah. that we live in. Uh, also looking at sodium consumption. We are big-time over-consumers of sodium. I encourage my students for at least a week to keep a sodium journal. Uh, take a look at, at the nutrition labels because that, has, that tells you everything, you know, it, it, it tells you how much sodium is in everything you eat. And keep a record of that. You should be trying to shoot for less than 2,300 milligrams a day. Mm. Average, average consumption in America for adults is probably more like about 3,500, 3,600 milligrams wow, per yeah. day. And in some cases, you know, it goes well over six, seven, eight thousand milligrams per day. Yeah. Um, so, so learn to read uh, nutrition labels so that you can monitor your sodium intake, manage your weight, exercise. Exercise can be a huge thing. It not only has a direct effect on lowering blood pressure, but it also can mitigate other things like, you know, in, in increasing weight, mm-hmm. right? So it can help reduce that. Uh, and a lot of times people who exercise regularly also want to eat better, 
Yeah. Okay. So, so all of these things can kind of work together. So those would be the three things I would recommend. You know, be physically active or exercise on a regular basis. And as I said, that, that's not just a side effect that it has on hypertension. It also has a direct effect on lowering your blood pressure, um, managing your weight, and watching what you eat, eating more fruits and vegetables, for example. You know, they, they, they do contain sodium, but no added sodium like you're going to get if you eat something out of a box, a bag, a can, or a jar. Yeah. Well, it's worked on me. I'm I'm going to add some green beans or some cauliflower to my dinner tonight. Even Put if it it's, on your pizza. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ron, we really appreciate you always here on the Matt Townsend Show. And uh, yes, so there are things that you can do to change your lifestyle, little things that you can do every day to make sure that uh, you don't become hypertensive. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. It's one of our favorite parts of the program now as we head over to speak with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. Today, it is Jerem and Brian. How are you guys doing? Holler! Did you know that today is National Teacher Day? Every day is National Teacher Day. That's true. It should be. You're right. I want to know uh, if you've had any great, great teachers in your life. Yeah, I've had a great teacher. Um, goes by the name of Bronco Mendenhall. Very dear to my heart. Um, yeah, love you, Coach. Thank you for all you've done for me. That's a great example. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> Very <laughs> appropriate. Like that's not a teacher. You, a coach. <laughs> no, he's absolutely a teacher. Jerem? Uh, my uh, basketball coach in middle school, Coach Treglown, who passed away a couple years ago in a bike accident, um, he he was a tremendous teacher. He I think he could have coached basketball at a higher level, but he stayed in our middle school, and uh, he just taught life lessons with basketball too. He always said, "Always end on a make." So every time hmm. I play basketball, I, before I leave the gym, I go make a shot, make sure. which was pro- in most cases was the first make all day. Uh, <laughs> I leave the gym, but uh, a couple of years ago we had a kind of mo- a memorial basketball game for him at uh, Elk Ridge Middle School in South Jordan, Utah. It was, it was pretty cool to honor his uh, legacy that way. Did you have to get a like a chair and some, or like somebody hold you up, like put you on the shoulders no. to make it? No, 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 no. Okay, cool. no. Cool, cool. I, I I'm wondering. six feet tall, bro. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. See, yeah. <laughs> I, I keep forgetting that everybody's – I'm six inches closer to the rim than you. Not everybody has the, the height challenge, yeah. you know, like I do. <laughs> How tall are you, Jeff? I'm about 5'10", five, 5'11". Okay. See, that's you know what BYU just signed a guard from uh, junior college that exact height. Really? Well, they just signed him. This was just announced just moments ago. We will tell you about the new addition to BYU basketball coming up on the show. So you're telling me I could play for BYU? Uh, no. That's no. <laughs> I mean, anything is possible. There, let's be honest. <laughs> See, well, if you were okay, a great yeah. teacher, yeah, you would tell me what Brian just told me, that everything yeah. is possible. Yes. Hey, is possible. speaking of more great <laughs> teachers, do, do either of you have a favorite movie teacher? Oh, yeah, Jack Black in School of Rock. Ooh, Clearly. that's a great one. Teacher. Yeah. And, and uh, what, what's, let's see, it's Robin Williams. Mr. That. Keating? No. <laughs> oh, Captain, my captain? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Nailed it. Nailed it. I don't think I have one. Pretty I don't really watch a lot of 
movies, I guess, like that. Like that. I, I think know. I think for me it's Mr. Keating, and I can't remember the character name, but it's Edward James Olmos in Stand and Deliver, that movie that they make you watch in math class about the the teacher in the L.A. school that uh, really teaches these kids calculus. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I remember that one. That was great. That, that, that was a great movie. I would, you know, if, if – if if I had to say something close to that, it wouldn't be a movie. It would be a, a TV show. It would be the was the Yellow School Bus or the Magic the Magic School Bus <laughs> hanging with Mr. Cooper. Oh, That's Mr. Cooper! But I would say yeah. the Magic School Bus because what teacher? I mean, do you know like shrinks a school bus in her class? That's pretty messed up. Sure. That teacher would have been oh, sued cool. from here to Sunday. Oh yeah, like <laughs> the legal ramifications of that. They actually learn. They learn like that's the real science right there. Yeah, it's better to learn that way. It's a hands-on approach. Invasion of personal <laughs> privacy. So on your show, other than talking about people that are going to be playing for BYU that are exactly like me, um, what else do you have coming up? Aaron, he is not exactly <laughs> like you. We discuss uh, Bill Connolly of SB Nation. Uh, he is a college football writer slash. Did uh, you say his name Connolly? Uh huh. I thought it was Connolly. Hmm. I think there's an E in there. Like, <laughs> I forgot my real sound. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sound we will discuss right. what he wrote yesterday about BYU football in his preview for SB Nation. He called BYU one of the steadiest programs in the U.S. Do you like that phrase? What do you think of that? We'll discuss that. Slow and steady wins the race. Not slow. I didn't. Steady. Uh, you said slow. Your words. I did not say <laughs> slow. <laughs> we'll discuss that. Plus a uh, little know the foe. Normally we do know the foe for abstract opponents. And this is they different were... from know the fa. Like the noodle dish? Yeah, yeah. Okay, exactly. gotcha. I was right. nervous about where you're going there. Um, <laughs> the University of Utah. Normally, we're, it's a baseball game day. Bad Cats have won nine in a row, 19 of 22. They play Utah tonight. You can listen right here on BYU Radio, of course, 8 Eastern time. We'll play Know the Foe. And, of course, a new, uh, Between the Lines. It's a special edition, Brian. Yeah, it's very special. Um, what's every, special about it, Brian? Every day is Mother's Day. That's what's special about it. It's a Mother's Day edition. Well, if Brian's there, it's got to be special. It is. Yeah. I'm just a sub, you know, just like a tag. Oh, tag co- come tire. on. You're part just, of the, you're Just in, a sub, listen, come subs on. Subs don't get commercials. You have commercials. That's so, true. I mean, like, so like two of them. Sometimes what happens is you get all this hype because you're like the sixth man, right? And you like win this sixth man of the year award. and then Which means you're on the then, team like, and you're an important then, part. Yes, right. And then as life moves on, you no longer become the sixth man. You become like the eighth or ninth or tenth man. And, but we you still have that many people. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you're number one in <laughs> my book. For? I just try to be humble, <laughs> I guess. All right, you guys, have a great show. We'll talk again tomorrow. Thanks for chatting with us and giving us your favorite TV or uh, movie teachers on okay. Teacher Appreciation Day. Mr. Schneebly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you guys later. Uh, Cole, how about you? Favorite movie teacher? So I I was thinking television also, and when Brian brought up Mrs. Frizzle, I thought of in in my learning atmosphere as a kid, Bill Nye was often a better teacher than my actual teachers. So like oh. he didn't play a teacher on TV, but he did substitute uh, in my heart as my science teacher growing he up. He taught you how to love. That's right. <laughs> You know, I loved watching episodes of Bill Nye the Science Guy in one of my science classes, too. But my science teacher, bless him, was so bland 
that he would fast forward the intro to Bill Nye the Science Guy, which was always the best part of the show. Bill, 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 Bill. Bill Nye the Science Guy. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, what a buzzkill that was. But uh, he was, you know, he was a good teacher. But uh, I guess didn't appreciate the musical side of Bill Nye the Science Guy. Shame. Well, as you know, we do like to end each show with our hero story of the day. And uh, this is another great one. A hero grandma fought off up to five crazed dogs to save her two-year-old granddaughter from a horrific attack. The toddler was playing with friends in a relative's back garden when several dogs from a neighbor's house burst in and attacked her. The screaming young girl suffered serious bite wounds to her face and body, but managed to survive the horror attack after her grandma plucked her to safety. The young girl was airlifted to the hospital in serious but non-life-threatening condition. The heroic grandma was also taken to the hospital where she received treatment for minor injuries. She has since been released from the hospital. Police arrested a 35-year-old man at the scene and seized five dogs and five puppies from his address. Specialist officers are working to establish the breed of the dog. The girl, who one resident described as very smiley and adorable, is believed to have been playing in a garden beside where the 35-year-old man lives. Wow. What an amazing grandma. I wish my grandparents were still alive, but uh, if they were, I'm sure they would do something heroic like that, too. And you don't just have to be a grandma or grandpa to be a hero. You can find day you can find ways every day to become a hero and to do it in very small ways. It's not always going to be in situations like this where you're saving someone's life, but you might be saving somebody's day or saving somebody's moment by just being there at the right time and and listening to those little voices in your head that are telling you to do the right thing and maybe you should go visit so and so or tell somebody that they're loved. Anyway, look for those opportunities. They're out there. We'll be back again tomorrow here on the Matt Townsend Show where we hope we can help you become the good in the world. Until tomorrow, we'll talk then.